And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition live tonight. God, I hate those headaches. They are so, and, and I can't take drugs. If I take drugs, I will sound like I sounded on the air one night when I got a whole bunch of email and people said, are you okay? Because I tried, you know, some, some uh, well, I, I tried something that uh, one should probably not try before you go on the air. And I sounded really <clears throat> stoned. So um, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad we're here tonight. Now, tonight could be very unusual because we're having difficulties connecting with uh, Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh, who is still in Sri Lanka, which I think is having another revolution. And the internet connections have been very, very iffy. So here is the plan. If we do not connect with Chandra at the half hour mark, um, we will segue to last night's rerun of last weekend's rerun of the astonishing discovery we have made which is these incredible mechanical nanotechnology inclusions in the moon rocks. I cannot emphasize what an extraordinary breakthrough this is. And I will save that till later on in this half hour. Now, if Chandra does join us, we will swing into what I had planned for tonight, which is a very thorough examination and discussion of the first year of the Webb Space Telescope the most infernally contentious, complicated, incredibly um, Rube Goldberg device ever devised by the, man, uh, by the mind of man and woman. And the damn thing has been working. There are basically zero problems. It's working as advertised, which means if you spend enough money, which NASA did, on developing something califragilistic expialidocious, it will work. And what it has given us, of course, is the galaxy and the local cluster and the Virgo cluster and the universe. And one of the most extraordinary uh, discoveries based on the latest web data is something that I'm really looking forward to talking with Chandra about because it could change everything and by everything i mean everything and i'm not going to give that game away unless we're forced to uh early in the first hour of tonight's show which is being broadcast live on the 20 no the 30th of september goodbye no and actually it's october 1st we're into october 1st tonight and then october 2nd tomorrow morning so this is, uh, you know, we're officially in fall. Um, there's all kinds of stuff to discuss. So let me start out by directing everyone who's new to what we call Radio with Pictures, which is you go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. And tonight there's that beautiful, glorious web image of what's called a Harbig Harrow object, which is a literal forming star system and way down right under the and in the um, in the banner, uh, there is a, a star, a forming star <clears throat> and a planetary system. And the star, because of hyperdimensional physics, that's, of course, me, not the mainstream yet, as it's forming, it emits these jets from the poles. 
because that's where the beam of torsion field uh, extension into our dimension extends from the north and south pole with a rotating object, rotating planet, rotating star, rotating, anything rotating has these two beams of force in the ether extending from its poles. When a star is newly forming, and there's all kinds of gas and dust and prominences and ionization and plasma, plasma's key, you will see the extension of the north and south polar jet, which is what you see in that gorgeous image taken by Webb just a, a few days ago. Anyway, you go to that banner, click on that, that will take you to the guest page. And once you're on the guest page, right under it, it says to listen to the show. And then it says under that, fast links to items, click on my name. That takes you to my items, which are further down the page. And if you do that, item number one is um, this bizarre discussion that NASA had with the press and with the, uh, you know, politics of the world, where they said that they had officially digested the independent panel report. Remember, they're looking into UFOs. They've renamed it UAPs. The UAP stands for Unidentified Anomalous Phenomenon, which is kind of like a pun, because science is all about anomalies. You don't have a science unless you have something to study, and you usually study something that you don't know as opposed to something you know, in other words, something anomalous. So we can get really caught up on our words if we're not careful. So anyway, NASA has set up, or they were talking about setting up, a group, an office at headquarters to officially begin looking into UAP. That's what this independent year-long study group was all about. It made a preliminary report a few months ago. And then it made a final report like a couple weeks ago. And at that time, the current administrator of NASA, because the head of the agency is not called a director, he's called an administrator. Um, and Bill Nelson, former senator from Florida, Democrat, has been, uh, um, you know, the uh, chief of NASA, the administrator of NASA since the beginning of the Biden administration. And I think it was a perfect choice because he has been letter perfect, note perfect, chord perfect. Every time he says something, he doesn't embarrass us. He actually referred to astronauts the other day by a term that I thought was so lyrically appropriate. He called them star sailors, which I thought was kind of cool. Now, I don't know whether Bill came up with that on his own or speechwriter did, but it's appropriate because ultimately in the terms of the progress of the technology which is about to be unveiled, NASA astronauts and others could in fact be capable of going to the stars, becoming true star sailors. Even in our own solar system, even in the you know, baby step you know, uh, journeys to and from the moon, if all communications fails, there is a backup system in the Artemis uh, command module, mirroring that of uh, Apollo, which allows the astronauts to literally do star sights, to literally use the equivalent of a high-tech sextant, allow them to triangulate their position 
either between Earth and Moon or someday when we send spacecraft to Mars, same thing will happen and they will be able to determine their position and the need for rocket thrust burns and mid-course corrections and all that by using the stars like sailors and navigators of old on Earth's oceans. I think it was John Kennedy who said that uh, space was like the new ocean. In fact, there's a whole NASA book, a NASA SP, a special publication titled The New Ocean. So it was really kind of cool to hear Nelson refer to astronauts as star sailors, because when all is lost except for the sextant, that is how they will get safely to port or safely home, by becoming true sailors once again. Anyway, so NASA announced a couple of weeks ago that they had set up this official office at uh, NASA headquarters to to pursue data relating to UFOs, i.e. UAP. And they actually limbed out some of the parameters. They're going to freely be sharing data between them and the Defense Department. Um, they're going to be using a lot of AI and what they call machine learning. Uh, AI is artificial intelligence. Machine learning is ML. You'll get used to these terms. I had to because when I looked at ML, I thought, what in the world? So anyway, um, and they're making a big deal that that's what they're going to bring to bear on a database that they claim, of course, has not yet been properly shared and or calibrated. But there's an awful lot of things on their to-do list, like getting calibrated UAP data, which, of course, is where things get really kind of squirrely, because even though Nelson announced that they had set up the office and they were already doing work, when some reporter, I think it was a reporter from Reuters, asked, well, who's the director of the new UAP office? Both um, Nelson and his deputy, who were at the press conference, says, well, we can't tell you. And I'm looking at the TV and I went, what? I mean, this is nuts. Because under federal law, you can't keep the director of a major agency department hidden. You've got to you know, make him available to Congress or her. You've got to make him or her available to the press. There are reports. In other words, his name was not really a secret. It's just they didn't want to announce it. And when they were pressed, uh, they said something like, well, because the panel – the study panel on UFOs slash UAPs got such hate mail that they were keeping his name secret to protect his identity and his literal person. I mean, we're living in an age where a former president of the United States can threaten on live television to execute the former you know, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and we wonder why NASA does not want to put out the name of the guy who's going to be in charge of the office of UFOs or UAP. So a few hours later, obviously, the lawyers all committed Harry Carey on uh, Bill Nelson's uh, uh, floor, I'm assuming. That's a tongue-in-cheek, you know, weird, sick joke. And NASA came out with a press release in a few hours naming the chief 
of UFO research, whose name, of course, is so forgettable that I've probably forgotten it. But you can Google and there's a picture of him and he, you know, it's it's um, it's someone who was liaising between NASA and the uh, Department of Defense for a long time before. So it's kind of like a sideways move. It's not really, you know, an advancement or a promotion or whatever. Be that as it may, when you actually read the report, which is my second item uh, in my Radio with Pictures file for tonight, that's the actual report. It's a PDF file. There are 33 tetrahedral pages, not 31, not 34, but 33, of course. Okay. Um, On page 33, there is a really interesting um, paragraph. Actually, it's, uh, oh, that's weird. It says page not found. Isn't that bizarre? So what what have they done? Taken it down? That seems, oh, yeah, they have. Well, that's kind of weird. Um, We'll have to change that because they've obviously changed the link. Gosh, I wonder why NASA would change the link. Anyway, that particular paragraph in the last couple of paragraphs on page 33 refers specifically to techno-signatures, meaning evidence of extraterrestrial intelligence orbiting other stars that's only available if you know exactly what you're looking for and you're seeing some evidence of a high-tech civilization or a previous high-tech civilization. In other words, NASA, as part of its UAP investigation, is formally opening the door. As I said when the preliminary report came out several months ago, They've opened the door officially, and now they've set up an office to handle looking at the possibility of extraterrestrial ruins, not just radio signals, not just, uh, you know, fleeting vehicles that might come from Alpha Centauri, et cetera, et cetera, in Earth's atmosphere, but they're actually setting up the office to look at techno-signatures, which include things on other planetary surfaces. Now, given that even the Webb telescope cannot possibly, by, you know, dozens of orders of magnitude, see features on the surface of planets orbiting other stars, the only thing they can be referring to in that very oblique Emily Dickinson kind of paragraph is planetary technosignatures that are in our solar system. Let me repeat that. Technosignatures that are in our own solar system on nearby planets like Mars, like the moons of Jupiter, the moons of Saturn, the surface of Mercury, and of course our own moon, and that's not a complete list. Which means in a very oblique, non-hitting-it-on-the-head fashion, they have admitted that they have the technology to find and verify if there are ruins next door, their current technology, including AI and machine learning, can comb through the literal terabytes of data that NASA has acquired over the last half century of the moon, of Mars, of the moons, of every possible location in the solar system where there could be 
ETI, extraterrestrial intelligence signatures, and they're making that kind of in a very quiet, oblique fashion part of their mantra, part of their charter to look for techno-signatures beyond the Earth. This is not trivial. This is very, 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 very big. So let me uh, pause here for a moment and ask Keith, and you can type in the in the uh, chat window, any luck on uh, Chandra yet? Because as I said, we've had very iffy situations. The last time he was scheduled to be on, he couldn't be on because of the Sri Lankan internet was not cooperating. And Keith is typing, he is typing. Okay, he is. we've called his cell. We've left a voicemail. Um, the phone company may be working. Uh, we'll find out. We could connect with him that way if we can't get him on Skype. Um, this is obviously a, a perennial problem when you're trying to reach the third world. And even though India has now joined if in no other way than space technology, the first world, Sri Lanka, just offshore, just to the south of it, is having severe problems. And part of them may be technical and part of them, in fact, may be political, because I think I read somewhere that they're having some kind of a political revolution, you know, kind of like ours. You know, the government literally a few hours ago almost shut down of the most powerful and richest country on the planet through no fault of our own, but because people in Washington simply can't get their act together, primarily Republicans. Let's hit it on the head. So given the fact that our government is working tonight and the Internet in Sri Lanka does not seem to be, our plan is that if at the end of the first half hour we have no joy with Chandra, we're going to rerun last night's program again, dealing with this astonishing breakthrough, absolutely indescribably uh, extraordinary discovery, which we made just a few weeks ago, a couple, three weeks ago, that in the 842 pounds of samples that the Apollo astronauts brought back from the moon, there are uncounted probably thousands or tens of thousands of inclusions which are technological in nature. They're not crystals of minerals. They're not melted blobs of brescia. They're not anything that's natural. They are literal, little machines. So, uh, but before we get to that, let me go through a couple of other things as a prelude to the show that we will do with Chandra if we can get him to show up, if we can make the uh, Sri Lankan internet work tonight. One of the things we're going to talk about is the fact that they have now tested Webb um, in, in theory as to its capability of detecting the molecules of life, the so-called um, Genesis signatures, which James Lovick, uh, when he created the so-called Gaia hypothesis many decades ago, uh, talked about at great length and published in many, many papers, which goes something like this. Life on Earth has modified the Earth's atmosphere and its environment to an extraordinary degree. When you look at planets that are basically lifeless, their atmospheres will have one kind of chemistry. When you look at a planet such as Earth, which has life on it, 
it is busily reworking the atmosphere every minute, every second, every day, every week, every eon, whatever, and replacing a primordial atmosphere with one which is chemically very unstable, meaning that it wants to go to its lowest energy state, which for an oxygen-rich atmosphere like Earth with about 20% oxygen and 80% uh, nitrogen and a few other little trace uh, elements, um, it wants to go to a lowest energy configuration, which means the oxygen is seeking to oxidize everything in sight so that you wind up with a low energy configuration without any further chemistry possible. And that would be what you would expect if Webb is looking at the atmospheres of distant worlds which contain no living organisms that we can, you know, kind of recognize. Remember, this is all predicated on life as we know it. Whereas if, as in the case of Earth, you have an incredibly unstable, incredibly oxidizing atmosphere, then life forms within it, in addition to replenishing the oxygen, which, of course, life on Earth does, both in plankton form, in microbial form, in the form of very complicated organisms we call trees, grasses, you know, flowers, anything that has chlorophyll and respires uh, CO2 and spits out oxygen as its waste molecule, other parts of the biosphere, other parts of the ecosystem, then take that free oxygen and use it to maintain very complex, very high energy metabolisms, and thereby the biosphere of a planet is directly proportional to the non-equilibrium nature of its air, of its atmosphere. And according to item number three, um, the Webb telescope is capable of detecting clear across the Milky Way galaxy, something like 100,000 light years away, if there is a planetary system orbiting a local star and the star is being occulted by the planets. In other words, the solar system is arranged so it's kind of like edge-on, like the edge of an old LP record or a CD, and we're looking at it as a, uh, as a, as a sideways view as opposed to a face-on view of the solar system in question. As the planets cross the star, meaning they cross the sun, for a brief moment as they're entering their eclipse and they're leaving their eclipse, the atmosphere of the occulting or a planet will leave spectral fingerprints, spectral lines in the spectrum of the star that Webb is looking at. And it turns out that Webb's sensitivity is so high with that extraordinary, you know, 22 meter uh, mirror made of eight sub mirrors that it can literally pick the signature of a life potential planet out of the noise even if that planetary system were located on the other side of the Milky Way from Earth, like about 100,000 light years away. And they have tested in the computer with real spectra 
of other planets and dumbed down spectra of our planet uh, based basically on looking at Earthshine from the moon and doing the appropriate filtering. So the ultimate um, dimensions and brightness of the Earth reflection is equivalent to a very faint star far away in the galaxy. It's, it's determined through this simulation process that if the Earth were located orbiting a star on the other side of the Milky Way, the Webb telescope could look at the atmosphere through the eclipsing spectral lines in the light of the star behind it and could tell, in fact, that the Earth was a very likely potential abode of life. And that's an astonishing demonstration of capability, which, of course, I wanted to talk with uh, Chandra about tonight. And it's looking like it may not be working because we're still no joy either from his cell or from his Skype in Sri Lanka. There's also something else, which is that the new web data has left this persistent weirdness in cosmology intact, meaning that if you measure the expansion of the universe and in the Big Bang model that equates to an age through one technique, it comes out about 13.7 billion years. If you measure it by another technique, which is called the Cepheid variable technique in the nearby galaxy, it comes out with a different age. And yet the two ages should be the same, and they're not, and that has occasioned a great discussion among cosmologists. Why is the first technique uh, giving us one number, and the second technique, which seems to work in the local neighborhood, i.e., between stars in our galaxy, where you can measure parallax and you can extrapolate Cepheid pulsation periods to distance and absolute magnitude, et cetera, et cetera. Why is that giving us a different number? And then on top of all this, some of the really exciting web data, which has been looking at the morphology, meaning the shape and form and maturity of galaxies at the very edge of Webb's sphere of visibility, meaning as far in the universe as the detection capability of Webb can extend, there's now serious discussion that in fact, the Webb telescope may have to revise the age of the universe itself, upward from 13.7 billion to almost 27 billion years. And this is not, you know, a nonsense story. This is not fake news. This is real cosmology done by real astronomers who are puzzling over amazing data showing mature galaxies like in our own neighborhood, a few hundred million light years away, except they are literally tens of billions of light years distant. So it looks like at the bottom of the hour, we're going to go to our break as usual, and then we're going to come back with uh, a replay of last night's show about this extraordinary, stunning breakthrough, which we, we, we had uh, really not expected. It's something that was so bizarre, so totally unknown that nobody could have expected it, which is when we look at the moon rocks 
returned from the moon by the Apollo uh, missions and the Apollo crews. If you look at my items in Radio with Pictures, items seven, eight, and nine, these are close-up micro photographs, thin sections of the Brescia moon rocks brought back to Houston labs. And in those, you will see little micro machines, nanotechnology, and fragments of much bigger machines. And of course, that simply should not be. So on that note, uh, obviously, we're not going to have joy with uh, Chandra. So I will leave you with this. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we return, we're going to talk for the next two and a half hours with our EM team about the stunning breakthrough of microstructures, technology on the moon, which is now here on Earth, all 842 pounds. See you on the other side. back everyone on this Saturday night September 23rd 2023 two threes two threes interesting I've noticed that before anyway so um, Robert asked me this very simple question and I gave him the standard NASA answer which is that these were photographic photographic um, photogeological thin sections when when geologists get rocks here on Earth or you go to the moon and you pick up rocks and bring them back, one of the ways they are analyzed, uh, in fact, if we go to the other side of midnight.com, we can actually see an item number four. I'll get back to three in a minute. Uh, what a thin section looks like. This is a meteorite being held in the gloved hands of a technician at NASA. 
and it was picked up somewhere either in the Antarctic or maybe in, in the Sahara Desert or whatever. When these objects, these extraterrestrial messengers are brought back to NASA by various teams, um, they are sliced with diamond saws into very, very, very thin sections. And then those thin sections, if they're thin enough, the minerals in the rock literally are transparent. They refract uh, light. They polarize light. We've talked about polarization a lot lately. And these are tools to use on a microscope stage to look at the rock and to identify crystals and minerals and assemblages of minerals, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I, I, I gave Robert the, the NASA answer. This is a black and white of a thin section of one of the Apollo 16 lunar rocks, which had been posted as part of the uh, cover of this report. And then I looked at it a little closer and I thought, wait a minute, that's the NASA answer. But what I was seeing, and I hadn't looked at it in years. In fact, I, I must confess, I never really looked at any of these thin sections because you know, you've seen one stained glass window looking thin section crystal, you've seen them all or at least if you're not a geologist, they kind of all look alike. But I went looking for the color version of the cover of this Apollo 16 report, and it was very hard to find because they're, they're not labeled uh, very clearly. And I just grabbed another one by, by you know, random chance, and I brought it into uh, you know imaging programs, downloaded it, brought it in, looked at it, and went, oh my God. God, because there, right in front of me, if I've been looking at any of these images from thin sections of the moon rocks brought back from Apollo, this game would have been over decades ago, because in those thin sections that I'm posting tonight, starting with item number five, and then six, seven, eight, uh, those, those, you know, five, six, seven, eight. Look at them. Look at them carefully. Take them into an imaging program. Look at them really carefully. They appear to be a cross-section in a matrix of various stages of extraterrestrial machines. Some of them are fragments. Those would be bigger machines. Some of them have obviously been cut in two by the diamond saws used to cut apart the rock. Remember, these are rocks from Apollo 16 brought back by the Apollo 16 astronauts, John, uh, John Young, who was the commander of that mission. And they were sliced and analyzed in Houston at the Lunar Receiving Laboratory. Samples were sent all over the world to thousands of consulting scientists in laboratories and universities literally all around the planet. These, these samples were not kept quietly in Houston. So as I looked at the first color thin section, and I could see not only fragments of bigger machines, but what looked to be like little tiny nano machines, fully assembled nano technology, obviously of an extraordinarily advanced culture left in the regolith on the moon smashed together, you're going to hear a term tonight called breccias. Breccias are most of what the moon rocks are composed of. What's a breccia? It's basically a smashed together rock created by the pressures 
of meteor impacts and shock waves uh, far away. And what it does is it smashes up the regolith, which is the lunar soil. It smashes pieces of other rock that has been fragmented by previous impacts together to create a new rock called a breccia. And most of the rocks that were picked up by the Apollo astronauts were these smashed together moon rocks created by older rocks which had been broken apart by endless millions if not billions of years of meteor impact on the airless lunar surface. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at cross sections of smashed up Brescia moon rocks brought back by the astronauts. And if you look very carefully at item number four, let me just make sure that I've got the right item up here, okay. Item number four, yep, item number, I'm sorry, item number five, yeah. Uh, that is what a thin section of these particular Apollo 16 moon rock, whose number I don't even have, this has been put together uh, so speedily in the last two weeks. Um, when you look at it in close-up, like if you look at item number six, which is a close-up of number five, you will see what appears to be incredible manufactured multi-dimensional geometry. Not once, not twice, but again and again and again all over the thin section covered. It's basically like, like a millimeter or less of actual moon rock as a thin section. So then you go to number seven. And there, in the upper left-hand corner, you see a stunning uh, object, an artifact, something that does not belong in a vaporized or, or smashed-together moon rock. In fact, at the bottom left, you can see one of these, like, rods, three-dimensional rods, looking like some kind of framework. And you can see it trailing off against that white background, which appears to be a melted wire. You can see the wire actually trailing off. Why would it be melted? Because look at all the little white things all over the image. Those are objects cut in half by the diamond saw, and the diamond saw creates heat of friction. And so because it was somewhere between the saw and that little white oval, the little wire literally melted from the friction of the saw and there you can see it. Well, you can look at all the other examples. We'll go through some of this in more detail as we go through our various uh, um, discussions with our panel members. Tonight, we've got uh, John Brandenburg, who, of course, is a uh, nuclear plasma physicist. He has been involved in several major um, NASA efforts and DOD efforts, including the Clementine mission to send an unmanned a robotic spacecraft on a military mission back in 1992 to the moon. He has written, he was part of our independent Mars investigation. That's how John and I first met. Uh, I asked him way back when if certain craters on the moon could be the imprint of nuclear weaponry, you know, bombs and whatever, and what others might be caused by particle beams or lasers and that was the beginning of an incredibly long and fruitful conversation and friendship stretching now over decades. So when I looked at all this, one of the first people I wanted to talk to about it was John Brandenburg. So without further ado, John, welcome to the other side of midnight. 
and let's get right into what I wanted you to talk about, which is something very parallel to our discovery, which is Avi Loeb's uh, odyssey to the South Pacific and his discovery through magnetic raking at the bottom of the South Pacific Ocean, like, you know, two miles or something down, of objects, melted objects, which he analyzed in terms of their nuclear and chemical structure as being a very weird non-meteoritic assemblage of, um, of elements, which you don't normally see in solar system sampling from all over, including the moon, including meteorites, including earth rocks, et cetera, et cetera. So that was how we kind of began our conversation. It turns out that this week you have a scientific paper which has been published out of India addressing, in fact, this particular problem. So let's start there. How have you been following Loeb's expedition and what are your conclusions from what Loeb found? Because frankly, the title of tonight's show, The Abbey Loeb Challenge, we are challenging Dr. Loeb to apply the same technologies he's applied to what he found under the South Pacific to the lunar samples resident in Houston, about 840 pounds of rock and soil and regolith and fines, as they're called. If he applies even one thousandth of the diligence he has shown in his South Pacific expedition, we will have an answer within days. Are there, in fact, micro-machines and technological fragments immersed, embedded in the matrix of the Brescia moon rocks the Apollo astronauts returned over 50 years ago to Earth? John? Yes, yes. Uh, great pleasure and honor to be on your show, uh, Richard. And, uh, yes, uh, I have been following Abby Loeb's um, uh, work uh, for several years now because he began with this uh, looking at this 10 to 1 length to width Amuamua Amuamua uh, that came cruising out of the sun it approached from the sun side and uh, he, he noted several things about it that it was at the exact average velocity for the surrounding stars so you couldn't figure out which way it came from which star it came from. It came from the sun side, and then we only detected it once it had scooted past the Earth. And when they started interrogating it with laser uh, radar beams, it sped up <laughs> to get out of the solar system mm. to make a getaway. Uh, pretty suspicious. And he he immediately said this this was no asteroid and it was no comet. John, said, John, hang on, like hang on. Interstellar probe by somebody. Hang on, hang on. This was the this was the fall in October of I believe right. 2017. And now he has uh, very much been looking for other evidence that uh, we are being probed by um, people uh, in some interstellar power, and uh, he's found evidence of this in this meteor that came in, or. Let's call it an Well, hang on. Let's not jump ahead here. I want to say on the record that on this show, I was the first to ever say that a Muamua was an interstellar, intelligently designed well, craft. That's, and that's a very good thing that you said that. And Loeb followed that 
but he followed it looking for kind of current mainstream explanations. I think now he's fastened on the idea it might be a solar sail, and I think it's something much, well, much, much more advanced. Uh, that, I, I think it was a much more advanced device, and, um, uh, you know, a solar sail does not come in from interstellar space uh, like this thing did and leave well, what's really weird is it was like it was parked in the path of the solar system, so we walked up on it like it was not moving, and it it, right. it was basically the encounter velocity of us orbiting the galaxy and it sitting almost motionless that resulted in the in the velocities that were observed that made it clear it was an interstellar object, the first ever known. Yeah, that's that's right, and uh, he's been. Um attracted a great deal of hostility from the community because, you know, we've been, the academic, academia is dependent on grants from NASA and the uh, scientific uh, National Science Foundation, and they don't want any discussion of any extraterrestrials at all. <laughs> I'm sorry, they don't. Well, they will be over, yeah. overwhelmed by, by reality. Anyway, so, yeah. so Lowe yeah. has been on this uh, kind of interesting mission, self-appointed. Yes, uh, he was threatened with being fired, even though he's a tenured, he was head of the department, and he says, good, fire me. I'm tired of doing all this paper, stupid paperwork as head of the department. <laughs> he couldn't be uh, He couldn't be actually fired from the university because he's got tenure. And um, you also must realize that the uh, Israeli defense chief, you know, he's Israeli, um, his uh, he grew up in Israel, and the defense chief, who's in charge of space, has said not only are there extraterrestrials out there, but the U.S. government has a treaty with them, a secret treaty of some sort, and um, I believe that was uh, said in 2014. You know what bothers me, John, is that someone of that caliber, with that position in the Israeli Defense Force, and given the amount of money we spend, you know, we send to Israel every year. It's, yes, it's, it's 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 a huge political uh, impact on American politics. The fact that someone high up in the uh, Israeli government could say something like that, and nobody in the mainstream repeats it or asks him, "What the hell do you mean?" Is, I, I know it's it's, it, it's 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 very frustrating because it's like there are certain things by agreement someone has decided we are not supposed to know, which goes back to artifacts, because I find it yes. much easier to, to unveil artifacts than it is ET encounters with UFOs, space people, spaceships, and all that. Remember, there's been this whole view and cry now since that uh, congressional hearing a few weeks ago, where one of the um, witnesses talked about alien spaceships the government has, our government, yes. and alien yes. bodies and all that. The difference between what we're announcing tonight and any of this other stuff is by law, the stuff we're announcing tonight must be available for independent scientific study. So if Abby Loeb wants to really go down in history as the guy who proved that we're not alone, there's 842 pounds of stuff sitting in Houston just waiting for him to knock on well, the door. It, you know, the science fiction, you know, the 
a science fiction era scenario that extraterrestrials had bases on the moon appeared for the first time in uh, 1957 in the movie Mysterians, the same people who brought you the, movie, the Godzilla movies. Hmm. You know, they had, uh, they had UFO abductions of these uh, hot Japanese girls, <laughs> uh, and uh, that got everybody interested. And uh, they also had... Uh, you know, alien bases on the moon, and then finally one near Mount Fuji, which, uh, you know, caused a, a, a very serious reaction by the uh, world's powers. So are you saying that through their media, the Japanese were in on the secret and they were trying to kind of blow the it, lid it's, off? It's as, if, it's as if somebody gave them that script, uh, uh, you know, out of Langley in, in, uh, in Virginia. I mean, we were... We were still heavily involved in the Japanese government in 1947. It was only a few years. Oh, yeah, of course. Two of course. years after. I mean, uh, that, that, well, this is 1957, so it was it was 12 years after, uh, let's see, 57. Anyway, it was about, um, you know, 12 years after World War II was over. I mean, the ruins in Tokyo were still smoking. And uh, and the United States uh, basically advised the Japanese government on just about everything it did when they could use the bathroom. And, so uh, so you're you're saying we don't have a lot of time if you can only spend another yeah, ten yeah, minutes. With us. Let's just say that that idea has been around for a long time, along with UFO abductions and even animal mutilations. That was in the thing uh, with James Arness. The original uh, 1955 mm -hmm. um, ET movie, who you know, based on who goes there. So anyway, just to just to cut to the chase, the idea that uh, anybody bothering us or trying to investigate us would put up bases on the moon uh, is is a very standard science fiction scenario, which of course um, is could have been planted by the government. Who knows? And that if if there had been those sorts of structures on the moon, and uh, let's just say, uh, well, everything on the moon is preserved. It's, you know, the rocks are, you know, close to four billion years old, four and a half billion years old. Um, so. Well, when you say preserve, remember the operative process on the moon is smash and grab. Absolutely, smash when, and grab. I mean, they, they people are looking at the moon all the time, and they find fireballs on the lunar surface from asteroid impacts all the time. I mean, asteroids don't burn up in the atmosphere. On the moon, it doesn't have one. So they just crash into the surface, and they make these nice bright sparks. So, and there's micrometeor. For every meteorite you see, there's a, a million uh, specks of dust that crash into the moon. So even if you built a structure and then abandoned it, it would get hammered to pieces in a million and years. And then the pieces are redistributed and redistributed oh, and redistributed. See, 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 see I, I keep kicking myself that I didn't think of this decades ago because I never imagined that the, that the temperatures and pressures would allow for actual individual pieces. And again, if you look at my samples, five, six, seven, and mm -hmm. eight, as we'll get to when we bring the other panelists on, there's, sure. there's tons of machine-like looking things. John, when you look at this, what do you yeah, think I know, of? I've looked at them. It, some of them look uh, quite uh, fascinating. They look like fragments of, 
technology. I will freely say that. Okay, so so for, for, all right, but see that's and it's still quite, it's quite you know it's, I mean in my own science fiction novel about the collapse of the UFO cover up, I had all these bases on the moon, and uh, that they had, some of them had changed hands quite violently. Okay, for people that have no idea how we're going to go from presenting these images tonight to where we get real science, we need to walk through what Loeb did with his samples. Because what he did after he... Hang on, let me, let me do the setup. Yeah, okay. After he published that the Muamua was probably artificial, again, right. he's the second guy, I'm the first, and he came out with a whole bunch of evidence. We have totally different evidence, but it's so complimentary. He then turned his idea to our attention to UFOs or UAP well, and he actually an object that came in at interstellar velocities. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm done with the setup. He okay. set up this thing at Harvard called Project Galileo and he's been funded by DOD and NASA money. And he started looking at setting up like what Alan Hynek did decades ago um, from Northwestern. Uh, I'm sorry, no, 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 Northeastern. He, he, he would set up cameras. That was Project Galileo. And then he tripped over this 2014 Defense Department report. Because yep. remember, we have radar probing the solar system in all directions. Well, we have satellites watching And that. we have satellites looking down at the Earth and all that. The DOD published in, 1914, oh, 19, in 2014 that a meteor, an object obviously of interstellar origin because it smacked into the Earth in excess of escape velocity from the sun at this distance yes. had been tracked all the way through initial high altitudes down to the surface and then it dunked itself in the ocean. So it's there was a yeah. So there was a pretty good area that Loeb got intrigued with because what he wanted to do was to somehow get money, get a submersible down to the ocean floor drag you know kind of some kind of a sled around looking for fragments turns out that he was looking for magnetic fragments so if you drag very easy to collect stuff that yeah way. exactly and when he brought it up he had something so unusual in terms of elemental and isotopic content that he yeah. published all over the world in major media without waiting for peer review and papers and all that that he'd found an interstellar artifact that had disintegrated in Earth's atmosphere, and he'd recovered some samples. That's yes, where I've that, analyzed it. That was no meteorite. Hang on, that's where the fun begins. Because just because something is from outer space doesn't make it extraterrestrial. Just because something is no. interstellar doesn't make it extraterrestrial, i.e., artificial. But you looked at the composition of yes. the objects that Loeb recovered. And you have come to a startling, stunning, amazing scientific conclusion. Have yes. at it. Okay. Well, you, the first thing you do is you look at the, uh, the, the you look at the natural abundance of of stuff in the solar system, and which matches the spectra of nearby stars. So that's fairly standard. Uh, relative abundance of elements, not the actual isotopes. That's more detailed. Um, but anyway, uh, you you look at that and you look at the meteorites that we find generally have that relative abundance of me of uh, 
of minerals, of elements. And this thing is completely alien. It looks, in fact, like melted aerospace alloy. It's got a lot of titanium and aluminum in it, and it's got iron because, of course, it was magnetic, so they picked up stuff that was magnetic. But it has almost no nickel in it. Nickel and iron are always associated in meteorites, uh, about to you know, ten to one, you know, roughly ten percent nickel for every, uh, you know, of the uh, of the iron nickel uh, arrangement. Okay, then you then you look even deeper. You notice it's full of beryllium, lithium, uranium, and also that's thorium. a bizarre combo. Well, these, these are three very rare elements. One is very heavy, that's uranium, and then another, the other two are very, very unfavored. The, the universe likes to make uh, helium from hydrogen, and then it skips over lithium and beryllium. It hardly makes any of that at all. Then it makes a lot of oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen. Uh, but so... But this thing is full of beryllium and lithium and uranium, three very rare elements, except if you have a melted thermonuclear weapon. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, my God, John. Wait, you mean someone sent us a nuke from interstellar yes. space? <clears throat> and it, it didn't go off? Yes. It, well, it, it obviously didn't go off, so it burned up in the atmosphere. It burned up in the atmosphere. Now, the, the, the best face you can put on this, the best, is that this was a failed Orion-type interstellar probe propelled, propelled by thermonuclear charges. Okay, hang on a sec. We're, we're obviously – we're, we're up, we're up against – John, John, we're up against yeah. the top of the hour, so I'm going to hold you over. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, you're on the other side of midnight. We're, we're, we're undergoing an extraordinary kind of blow-by-blow. Of what happened in back in 2014, which was years before Oumuamua showed up. Yes. Here on the other side of midnight, my first guest tonight, John Brandenburg, he will complete the story of why he thinks from Loeb's published materials assessment that what smacked into the Earth's atmosphere in excess of solar system escape velocity, meaning it came from beyond the solar system was in fact a manufactured recognizable thermonuclear device or weapon that miraculously when it hit the atmosphere didn't go off and it couldn't be from anybody here because it was moving faster than 30 miles per second you're on the other side of midnight my name is Richard C. Hoagland. When we return, John will complete the rest of the story. Thank you. 
TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, the 23rd of September, 2023. 23, wasn't it? uh, Who was the writer who thought 23 was a kind of a communication code to Sirius? I know someone's pricking up their ears at that. Anyway, so John has laid before us an extraordinary uh, hypothesis backed up by the Abbey Loeb data, which is that someone for Christmas sent us a thermonuclear weapon and for some reason it didn't explode and the only people that would know this would be those who could spend enough money to go and drag the bottom of the ocean floor off uh, uh, Indonesia and uh, uh, New Guinea and come up with samples that John can look at and say wait a minute nobody creates that unless John pick it up yeah, well, uh, for one thing, I'm certain that people in Avi Loeb's group know exactly what they were looking at. Well, don't but you think the DOD? Uh, hang on, hang on. Don't, don't don't you think the DOD was funding him quietly so that he could be the point man to go and look and recover this stuff, given that he is out there? In other words, it's wheels within wheels within wheels. Nobody's Anyone, telling us the truth. Anyone who can look on Wikipedia and see the design of a thermonuclear weapon can figure this out. I mean, it just, it, you look at the design, you just look on Wikipedia, it's got a diagram of a nuclear weapon. It's full of beryllium, lithium, and uranium. And these are three very rare elements in nature, but you combine them together and they make a rare thing, a thermonuclear, let's just call it a device. For right now, uh, you know, it's a, if you want to propel a spacecraft to near the speed of light for interstellar travel and do it at a fairly low, te- you know, some kind of technology that we could even do ourselves, then you do a Project Orion type uh, nuclear charge propelled uh, device, uh, vehicle. And it's as if somebody had aimed this probe at the Earth from interstellar somewhere else, some other star system, and uh, it 
uh, fell in, it, it basically rendezvoused with the sun, the solar system, got into the same rest frame as the sun, and then fell inward towards the Earth. And it was supposed to fire braking charges, uh, which would have been nuclear uh, explosions, uh, to slow down and go into orbit around the Earth. But whoever ran it, let's let's put the best possible face on this. They decided just to let it burn up in the atmosphere instead uh, because they detected that uh, the human race was here. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me – given that we have a whole bunch of other signatures that somebody out there has been palling around here for a very long time, do you really think this was some naive you know, uh, pre-war civilization using the best of their technology to send – a ship between the stars, or was it a weapon sent deliberately to our DOD, fused so it would not explode, but if it was recovered, everybody knew it was a weapon because it was a challenge to the current political directions of what's going on on Earth. In other words, it's, it's, it's basically blackmail. Like if you keep going, we could do even worse. Um, oh, that's, that is certainly a possible scenario. And by not letting it, I'm putting, you know, I call this a fig leaf interpretation. I'm putting a fig leaf over the, uh, well, we can't really speculate about anything because we have no data other than it. I I know we just, we have a, a thing that was melted and then disintegrated in the atmosphere after coming in at very high speed, it was very tough, by the way. The thing, the hull of this thing was made of very tough, heat-resistant alloy, and that was full of aluminum and titanium. It was well, it obviously had some kind steel. of heat shield, otherwise it wouldn't have survived at all, right? Uh, yes, and it was the toughest thing they'd ever seen come in because it came in so fast and yet survived so long to, to low altitudes before melting and then breaking up into a bunch of a shower of droplets over the uh, Pacific Ocean. Yeah, it almost seems to me, John, like a gift. And we could speculate all night, and we don't have all night. I, I well, want, they, I'll bring in intelligence and the interaction of civilization. The possibilities become just myriad. You yeah. Know, the astronomical number of possibilities. Okay, if you want to go to check out John's items for real – which means it's a written report. There are two items published under John's it's section. It's a preprint. Uh, it's been accepted as a scientific journal. Okay, so item number one is a PDF that John created on his hypothesis that this was a nuclear weapon that did not explode, but we know it from the signature of the materials, which are well, really – Well, I call it – as I said, it's a fig leaf, but I call it a device. Yeah, well, okay, okay. And item number two is an actual link to the paper – which is being published even as we speak by a mainstream Indian scientific journal, right? Yes. They're on they're on a roll. Chandrayan? Oh no, no, no. They the the um the the link I sent you was the earlier article about the Mars Holocaust. I haven't gotten the link for the Indian scientific journal. Oh, okay, article. okay, okay. Sorry. I'm I'm sorry. They they, they just haven't, you know, I We've gotten everything all tied up with a ribbon on it, but they haven't sent me the link to the saying the article has been published. Here's the link to it. Well, let me let me let me close the the loop here then, because what differentiates our announcement tonight of 
ET machines and fragments in the matrix yes. of all these rocks, almost a thousand pounds of samples brought back by the astronauts sitting here on Earth tonight under a civilian space agency. There's no legal pretense once you know what's in that vault that they can keep it secret. What I well, want to do, hang, hang on, John, hang on, hang on. What I want to do is I want to marry um, Loeb's technology, his technique, which, yep. he, which he used to analyze the elemental composition of this bizarre interstellar object, yes. weapon, whatever. Apply the same technology in a laboratory to different random samples from the Apollo cache. Remember, almost a thousand pounds slice this rock, that rock, that rock over there, see what's inside, and then apply the same ion beam micro sampling technology, which is literally nanometers in scale, to turn up what the composition is in terms of elements, metals, plastics, whatever, of these apparent looking machines. Because that will tell us for pennies, pennies, what this stuff is made of if it's manufactured, and it might even give us some clues as to the nature of the devices themselves and their end use. It's all within grasp tonight if Abby Loeb, as part of his journey, will go from collecting materials under the Pacific Ocean to making a visit to Houston and applying the same technology to the 842 pounds of priceless samples returned to Earth because there's not just rocks in those samples. There's real, incredibly ancient ET technology. Oh, I think you're, you're, I think you, you're very, very much correct. I think that this is a very plausible interpretation of some of the fragments you see in your in these slices, and uh, we ought to be investigating that. There could be a million years worth of technology that was built, abandoned, wrecked by meteors, scattered all over the lunar surface, and just became part of the lunar regolith. And um, See what I hadn't. Well, John, John, spaceships to uh, you know abandon uh, abandoned domes. Yes, yes, exactly. Scenario and uh, because you know, well, the reason, by the way, Earth is in the center of a a galactic void. We actually own Boardwalk and Park Place, (laughs) and this could account by why we seem to get so many tourists, reportedly. But anyway, uh, I think we may have been discovered by some other less advanced species than the other ones. I don't – who knows? Who knows? Well, that's why I don't want to do a lot of speculating tonight because we don't have to. We can actually figure this out. I'll tell you you what UAP stands for, though. (laughs) It means you are played, meaning you are played for a fool. Okay, that's, that's one way of putting it. Absolutely. Hey, let me let me the name from UFO to, to UAP. Let me talk about another mission. Would not make a connections to the UFO cover up. Yeah, uh, John. Let me talk about another mission that kind of dovetails to what we're talking about tonight. Okay, very good. Because literally, it's Saturday night, it's the twenty third. Tomorrow, the twenty fourth. Tomorrow, 
the NASA OSIRIS-REx spacecraft, the return capsule, bringing, uh-huh. bringing about a pound, give or take, of samples from the asteroid Bennu, which looks yes. incredibly weird geometrically, is going to enter the skies of continental United States over uh, Utah, <clears throat> will come into the atmosphere, will land in the some Utah desert, will be picked up by a team ferried there by helicopter, will be then sent to the extension of the old lunar receiving laboratory in Houston, where the moon rocks were analyzed decades ago and are still being analyzed. And this new material, which is, as I said, about a pound of very finely divided stuff, Looks yeah, like they little rock. A bunch of stuff from the surface. Oh, a tremendous amount. And I'm going to bet dollars to Navy Beans that in among that one pound of stuff, there is the same kind of micro machinery that we found in the rocks the astronauts brought I'll tell you what moon. I think they're going to find in there. It's CI carbonaceous chondrites, which are from Mars, by the way. Well, we will both see who's right. The point we'll is both that. We'll see who's right. That. I that see. That, I'll, I'll put I'll put a nickel on that on that on that wager. Okay, well I can probably do better than that. But anyway, the point is okay. that tomorrow, sometime during the day, I'm not exactly sure whether it's morning or afternoon, but this uh, sample return from the Bennu asteroid, which has been a mission ongoing since 2022, when they picked up the samples of the asteroid, it'll be back on Earth. It will be analyzable by all the incredible array of extraordinarily sophisticated technology, which literally can look at the nanometer scale, things that are a billionth of a meter, which is about three feet, as the same kind of technology that Loeb used on his samples, this kind of technology should be applied both to the Bennu samples coming in tomorrow and the 840 pounds of moon rocks that have been on Earth for over half a century and Believe me, if this is done properly and in public, the answer is going to be we are not alone. History takes a huge leap forward. Now, if, if Loeb does not pick up the challenge, I'm, I'm going to be very intrigued with what his excuses for not taking a look turn out to be. Because if he doesn't do it, we can put together another team and under law – NASA will have to provide the samples for an accredited team looking with these well, state-of-the-art tools. They have some loophole. You know, there's there is no loophole. There is no loophole. No, there is. They none. have a whole department in the government to to confiscate extraordinary evidence. It's all locked in a warehouse. Yeah, but that's the then, and this is now. You know, if you're living back then, yeah, we'll never make any progress. We're making all kinds of progress. It's just not linear. And True. I guarantee you it's not going to come from the UFO crazies. It's going to come from looking at artifacts NASA returned a half century ago. And what I don't understand, John, I mean, you've been part of the community for decades. Yeah. How, how if you're a, a, a geologist in – uh, Kuala Lumpur, or in uh, South Korea, or in yeah. Japan, and you analyze this stuff and you find what you and I agree is there, and you don't report it, how do you get away with not announcing something so astonishing in a sample that came directly through the paper trail and the chain of custody from NASA? 
There's a great deal of herd thinking in science. I'm sorry to I'm sorry to break it to you, Richard. Uh, I I asked a British guy. They found organic materials in a Mars meteorite, and I said, "Well, that was two years ago. Why haven't you found any more?" And he said, "We were afraid to find any more because we got such so much hostility when we announced our first findings." He said, and so. But hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Now NASA has officially set up a bureaucracy looking for extraterrestrial intelligence, either well, as either as vehicles, either as vehicles or as chemistry or as little machines in the rocks brought home from the moon. There's no way with this political backdrop that they can avoid the truth for much longer because I, we and, and this I, audience. And I agree with you, Richard. We are, we are we're going to push like crazy. Things are changing. The whole thing is falling apart. We're going through the second Copernican revolution, you know, where we're going to wake up one morning and realize, oh, my God, we're not the center of the biological universe after all. <laughs> and so it's I, I, I do agree with you. I guess I'm I'm part of me is I'm a little bit cynical after my experiences, uh, you know, um, especially after, you know, well, do you want to talk about the independent Mars investigation team? And I'm so glad that you asked me to be a part of that. It uh, changed my life for the better. And uh, well, as Humphrey Bogart said in Casablanca, it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, Richard. No, no, it just you made the face on Mars as uh, well known as the face of Washington and the dollar bill, and that that was a big accomplishment. Well, that was just foreplay. This stuff, <laughs> this stuff you see on the screen, this is where this is where the action is, and and we have one protagonist, Abby Loeb. Hey, I want to bring some other members of our panel. Yeah, bring on Bob Morningstar. Well, I want to actually start with Andrew, because oh, Andrew Andrew Curry. Thank you, John. And Andrew Curry is is um is is not a, a scientist. He's an artist, but he is recognizably proficient in seeing geometry and shapes. Oh, Andrew, very good. what was your uh, first take when you looked at these micro photographs? Well, if you zoom in, okay, if you zoom in really close, there's a couple things I want to get off here, off my chest. Um, there's symmetry and there is organization. And I say that not only by looking at it, but when I compared it to um, – you know, thin slices or, or whatever of uh, of crystal, crystal stuff. The crystal is, yeah, sometimes it looks pe peculiar and strange, like things here on Earth, but it's not to the degree of organization that the samples that you're putting out there, Richard, are. And yeah, look, this is if I really went in and, and spent the time to, to go into the details, I could pull stuff out. And I didn't have time today. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry about that. I promised you, Richard, and I couldn't. It's all right. But it, yeah, but there are, you know, we, we're seeing things like wires, John, like possibly even <laughs> wires in this I stuff. know. I've looked at the pictures, and, uh, yeah, some of the stuff looks very much like broken up microtechnology. Yeah, and there's even um, one of our, our members here, Ron Gerbron, he said – it reminded him of an episode, I think it was Stargate. Stargate, Stargate SG-1. 
Yeah, and Rob, Richard, or Richard. Yeah, Richard, do you want to explain what what Ron saw? Well, why don't we bring on Ron? Ron Drew, yeah. Ron, are you with us, Ron? Is Ron with us? I think I see oh. him. He is there. I think I see him. Yeah, Ron, pick up. He's seen but not heard. Oh, too bad. Okay, I'm on, I'm on muting. You know how I am with phone. All right, you've been muted. <laughs> so, Ron, yes. speak up. Okay, the most recent uh, and evil, uh, well, not evil, uh, foe that the Stargate crew faced was a bunch of self-replicating um, nanobots. Sure. Well, they called they called them replicants. Uh huh. And that and that thing that is so prominent in uh, Richard's time sample there. The first time I looked at it, I said, "This looks like a replicator tile." Are we looking looking at seven or six? Uh, I can't look at the screen right now. I think so it's I, probably seven. Yeah, the one that has the wires yeah. and the cross hatching and all that. Yeah, that was the first thing you sent me. The picture number one you sent me. This is John. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, that is quite impressive. Well, but see, I only had time to look at two or three samples out of literally thousands of rocks that NASA has thin sectioned over the years and posted their images all over the NASA headquarters, uh, various Apollo mission websites. So between now and the next time we do a show like this, I will find more. I'll do comparisons showing what ordinary uh, thin sections of rocks on Earth, crystals, crystalline rocks look like. I mean, there's basically just three types of rocks. There's igneous, which is melted. There is uh, sedimentary rocks, which form on Earth under underwater. And then there's conglomerates, which are bigger chunks of rock formed underwater. But on the moon, you've got what are called these brushes, where every impact, because of the shock and the thermal stress of something coming in at hypervelocity, creates a crater, creates all kinds of debris, wells debris from totally disparate sources together <clears throat> as kind of like synthetic rocks. And that was the majority of the material the astronauts brought home. And as John said over and over again, if you've got a technology covering a large part of the moon and you've got a few million years to play with, by the time you get the brushy, as we now know, you're looking at them on the screen, there could be bits and pieces of technology from anywhere on the moon. From 15 different species. Exactly. And from a billion years of time. I mean, this is such a breakthrough. I, words almost, English almost fails me to properly context tonight what this show represents well, and, see, why, see and, why Ab, and why Abby Lowell, let me finish, would be dumb not to take the lead on this given that we're offering it to him to follow up on his splendid work in the South Pacific and simply bring in the revolution in a way that is absolutely quintessentially scientific through and through. No need to speculate at all. Well, and I'll mention to you that this stuff would not survive on Earth because of all the water. Oh, it would be oxidized totally to nothing. You know, there's so much geologic activity in water, yep. especially yep. inundation by water and erosion and stuff. You wouldn't have this stuff. on if, if there was anything like this that fell into the Earth's environment from space, it would be gone in a thousand years. 
on the moon, though, everything is preserved. Yep. It's and all, and remember, piece, we've got we've got pieces, we've got pieces coming back to Earth tonight from Bennu, and I guarantee you there could be one or two of those weird things in that sample. A pound the, is the, stunning. The, the Japanese, you, you realize, also did a asteroid uh, return, so they have some asteroid material, and their asteroid actually crossed the orbit of Mars too. It spent a lot of time. Hmm out by Mars. So it was coated with uh, carbonaceous chondrites, which was a big surprise to them. Okay, we've got a lot of people on the panel tonight, so let's bring on Robert Morningstar. And by the way, everybody's bios are available where it says under under the promo tonight, uh, fast links to bios. John's is there, Ron's, Andrew's, Ruggiero's, Keith, David, uh, Robert, Laura, and Barbara. Um, So let's bring on, on, uh, actually, let me do this. Richard. Richard, yeah, can I interject just for yeah. – I really want to ask John a question. I know we're five minutes to the end of the half hour, and I know – Ask away. Yeah, John, listen. We did a little study, or I did a little study, on a lot of the staff for NASA uh, um, in regards to their Curiosity mission, um, You know, basically the Mars rover missions that were going on. And these young people – a lot of them are young. There's, there's a mixture of ages. But a lot of the younger ones, the ones sort of in their 20s, 30s, go on and on in their bios about, wow, you know, I grew up on Star Trek and this and that. And I, and you know, when I, I'm really outgoing, I travel and then they're just clicking a picture and not seeing anything. Well, they, recruit, they, they recruit people who have like to drive rovers who have been driv- driving in LA for five years. If they see a burning car next to the freeway with a gr- person in a gorilla suit waving for help, they just keep driving. And that's that's the kind of pipe people they hire to, uh, you know, drive the rovers on Mars and to look at the data. And these people, by the way, I was a young graduate student at one point. I was told the world is flat and stay away from the edges, basically. And I said, yes, sir, please sign my Ph.D. thesis. So, I can get out. <laughs> so you're basically saying it's groupthink. I think it's a little more pernicious. I'm my practice. More pernicious than just group things. Well, I think it's mind control. I think it's mind control. I think it's a a technology alive and well and used very sparingly, but in critical key situations, like a whole bunch of, you know, Star Trek grad students at JPL saying, oh my God, look at that machine, look at that, you know, whatever. None of them are doing what would be expected. None. No, and they they know better than to do it. They yeah, but if a whole bunch of them if a whole bunch of them decided to hold a press conference, there's not a damn thing that anybody could do. Not a well, damn they thing. Could fire, they could fire all <laughs> so John, last last thing, and I know we're getting close I'm to that. Sorry. Yes, yes. And, and I don't want to take up Robert's time when he, when we come back. But we just talked about NASA coming back from Bennu. You just spoke about the Japanese mission that's bringing scrapings of we know what that that's not an asteroid. We know that geometric thing is a thing, <laughs> a space platform or a spaceship or, you know, it's just a derelict. Sure. What is it going to take for the straw to break the camel's back? Like, what is it going to take when, I mean, how much evidence, is someone going to leak this out? Richard's well, doing well, it, right? Andrew, remember, John is very cynical. I'm much more, oh, okay. you know, uh, bullish. I'm not cynical. I'm just, I'm just a little jaded. That's all. But what would it take if we have just insurmountable evidence? I mean, you can't look past this stuff forever, or can we? Well, in, in my novel, 
about the collapse of the UFO cover-up. Some ranchers finally bring down a flying saucer trying to take one of their cows for mutilation. And the government sends troops to try and recover it, and they run into a bunch of trigger-happy cowboys, and the cowboys win the gun battle, and the UFO cover-up then has only hours to live uh-huh. after that. That's what happens in my novel. Tell them the name of the novel. <laughs> Morning Star Pass, The Collapse of the UFO Cover-Up. It's not... It's by coincidence. It's it sounds like Robert Morningstar inspired it. Actually, it was uh, it was a little town in uh, Virginia called Morningstar that I stumbled across. Yeah. So, but anyway, it's a great name. What's that? I'll never forget. That's how we met when I came out from undercover in the UFO. Okay, guys, we are we are we are at the bottom of the hour. Okay. My guests this morning are. John Brandenburg, and a cast to numerous dimension. They're all listed on the website. You can find their bios. We're going to get right back to our conversation right after this small message from the other side of midnight. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, the 23rd of September of 2023. we got John Brandenburg with us, who thinks that my protocol for uh, inveigling Abby Loeb into this uh, this prior patch is uh, well yes, thought he's, out. he's my hero. <laughs> well, we'll see if he actually rises to the bait, because there is... Oh, he already, ha- he there, already has. Yeah, but all he has to do is look at the damn moon rocks. Because there's not just chemistry and isotopes, there's machines. So you don't think he's going to take up the challenge? I, oh no, no, he may very well, he may very well do it. He may very well agree with you. I think your suggestion is eminently reasonable. Thank you. Okay, Robert, Robert Morningstar, who was our civilian intelligence analyst, which very good, seems very good, to be, you know, kind of a contradiction Thank in you. terms. Thank you, Robert. Your thoughts. Given that you're, um, I mean, I you're, you're, you're really responsible for tonight. You know that, right? Yes, I, I know. I could have named the novel after you, Robert. I didn't, but I, I could. Have. I was, I was so surprised when you wrote to me and uh, told me the name. And Victor Norgard is the name. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> a, a wonderful. You know what? 
that book, I, uh, I asked experts about it, and Dr. Bruce McAbee said that it was the most accurate book about UFO and the background of UFOs that anybody had ever written. And that's Dr. Oh Bruce McAbee. Yeah. Said that. Well, he, he actually sent me a private message saying that he really liked the novel and that it was really useful. Yeah, he was more glowing in, in uh, his response to me. And he said that you had had access to real files, but that you had had to write it as a... Science novel. fiction, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of science fiction, I'm so happy that you mentioned one of my favorite movies, The Mysterians. The Mysterians! There you go, Which I, I, I aired, uh, Andrew and I get together, we have a midnight movie club, and about two years ago I said, you've got to see The Mysterians. That revealed so much. Alien abductions, the taking of oh, women, they are burying robots, Japanese women into these yeah, exactly. burying robots, earthquake-producing uh, technologies. It, it's a classic. Tojo for this. I recommend it to anyone. And, and yeah. bases on the moon. Bases and on bases, the moon. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Bases on the far side of the moon. So well, they didn't have in there was animal mutilations. Right. Right. Well, you covered that with the thing and James Arness. Uh, James <laughs> Arness. Now, yeah. I know. So okay, Robert, 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 we don't have a lot of time. It's amazing how three hours goes. What okay. are your thoughts of the thin sections and the machines? The thin sections show uh, nanotechnology. And remember, I, I looked at that uh, black and white, and when I said to you, what the hell is that? <laughs> and I said, it looks like the inside of Andrew's desk because I imagine – uh, protractors and straight edges and slide rules and all kinds of. You know, what's so uh, weird is when I looked at it again, because again, my my one of my cliches, you know, what you can't imagine, you can't see. I never imagined that this stuff would survive pounding and pounding and pounding. And then I did a little calculation and I realized that most of the redistribution of the regolith, which is the lunar soil filled with the rocks and the junk is far enough away so that it's the shock waves penetrate, but the temperatures, the high temperatures that vaporize things are really restricted. So basically what meteors do when they impact the moon is they redistribute the rubble over yep. and over and over, and, and they smash it smaller and smaller. So if Absolutely. I had my head on, I would have thought decades ago, oh my God, we need to look at the rocks. They compacted that. I have a surprise for you. The reason I uh, recognize that stuff is that I held breccia and northrosite, a northrosite, different uh, samples of moon rocks, and I studied them under the microscope. And it's just a coincidence. Last, last night, Ron asked me why all the samples that the U.S. government gave to other countries turned out to be fake. And I said, because I believe there are fossils embedded in some of them. Yes. And and the yeah, Russians, the Russians. Remember the Lunacod. Remember the Russians with the Lunacod series, the unmanned rovers that yes. they got to the moon, bathtub size, you know, with lids and solar panels. They had drilling equipment. They were able to collect and 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 send back to Earth unmanned samples. And really there are quite there, a remarkable achievement. There are all automatic back in the day of tubes, practically. And, yes. and they were able to analyze them, and they published papers showing mm -hmm. fossils and biology in their samples, and none of our guys ever even responded. 
That's why I said to Ron, there are fossils embedded in, uh, in the samples. Now, during this, this conversation, as I wanted to show you some of the samples of the breccia that I had studied, I came across a breccia that has microchips embedded in it. It's the last picture that I sent you. And you can see the grid pattern in the broken microchips. It's the one that's a kind of green sample with blue chips in it, and they are rather large. And you can see exquisite grid patterns, uh, parallels. You mean like printed circuits? Yeah, printed circuits, yeah. exactly so. Yeah. Okay. It's amazing. Well, it's form, form follows yeah. function. If yeah. an AT John, I'm going to send you an even uh, better picture of it tomorrow so that you can oh, start. Oh, very it. good. Very good. Okay, what yeah. we're going to do for everybody who is not seeing samples from from uh, Robert or from anybody else, because Ron's not connected, his data, neither is Andrew, we're rerunning this show tonight, tomorrow night, because it's so damn important. And the only way you get through the noise curtain these days is to be a signal a redundant, redundant, redundant signal. So we're replaying this show tomorrow night for everybody out there. If they want to save, you know, pennies and not subscribe to Club 19.5, tell your friends, your family, the people who have been skeptical of what you've been interested in, tell them to listen free tomorrow night to the other side of midnight. We'll go through this whole thing for them. And it's something they need to know because I believe, John, your, your nuke, was a warning. Someone wants us to stay in prison and they're not happy with where we're going, the direction of disclosure, the direction of making these weird, you know, things that go bump in the night, part of mainstream culture, both at the DOD and at NASA with formal offices. And frankly, I think they followed up what was very subtle in 2014 with what they did to Maui. Because Maui was an attack by enemies, not from Earth, I would bet dollars to Navy beans, because the technology is nothing that is loose well, on planet Earth. Certainly, certainly horrendous disaster. And I there's think no, explanation. no explanation for it. I'd well, like to say something about Imuamua. Okay, and then I I'll say something. I first read about Imuamua 27 years ago, when I picked up a book by Gurdjieff. It's called Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. Mm. In that novel, he describes Imuamua to a T. It's called The Space of Karnak. And he gives a very unusual uh, account of the evolution of human beings uh, by uh, extraterrestrial engineering. He says, uh, I'll read you this short sentence which describes it. It says that there were two satellites which broke off a planet during its early phase after it was hit by a comet, and they took orbits uh, around the Earth. One was the moon, and the second body, unknown to mankind, is called Anulios. But listen to this. In order to maintain cosmic stability, it was necessary that both bodies remain in Earth's orbit. To ensure this stability, men were required to emit a certain substance an artificial organ was implanted into all human beings by the high powers, making them oblivious of this mechanism, but causing psychological side effects such as vanity, pride, and other vices. <laughs> they caused to grow in the three brain beings there in a special way at the base of their spinal column, at the root of their tail, which they also at that time still had, 
in which part of their common presences furthermore still had its normal exterior expressing the so to this day fullness of the inner significance. Gurdjieff was one of the most brilliant men of the uh, 20th century. Uh, high this was this written, Bob? This was written, be- he dictated it between 1927 and 1929. Ah, and many, many years ago, I read uh, an account of Hitler saying that he had met the Superman, that yes, he had seen yeah, his presence and trembled in his presence. And I said, my God, what is this guy? And about five years ago, I found out that he was talking about Gurdjieff. That's, uh, that's rather significant. And Gurdjieff had this uh, high cosmic knowledge. Well, remember, has- Hitler and company were looking to Tibet as the last vestige of the ancient pre-catastrophe civilization that they could mine and use to own the world. Yeah, the Atlantean root race. I wanted to ask John, what tipped off Abby Loeb to go and look in that region of the Pacific Ocean for what he found? The the Defense Department uh, released, you know, uh, images of the thing burning up, and they had basically, they just looked for where the track ended. Was this within the last three years? It was 2014 when 2014. the accident came in. 2014. But they did not make it. But they didn't make it public until after Loeb had made a big deal about Oumuamua. Because I was wondering if it possibly had some connection to the Tonga explosion, which you explored. No, on the no, road no. Much, much too, much too early. Much too early. Yeah. So anyway, uh, but Tonga, yeah. I think, was another warning. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. Well, the geometry, uh, the energies, uh, everything about it. That was the big undersea volcano that erupted like a yes. weapon. Yeah, that one. That was pretty interesting watching that shockwave move. That was. Well, uh, look at the geometry. You know, I didn't post it tonight because we've done it right, many it other shows. Right, it looked like those two. Yeah. All right, we got a whole bunch of other people. I want to get a yeah, non. Yeah, yeah. I want to get a non-technical person reaction here. Laura, that's you. Laura's background is in the social sciences. She has a brilliant podcast called Speaking of Jung. Uh, I did an interview with her some years ago. Apparently, it's uh, you know one of the most downloaded, which I find interesting. Uh, and it turns out that Jung, before he decided to become the world's premier uh, psychiatrist, uh, was interested deeply in ancient archaeology. Uh-huh. Laura? Hi. Hi. Yeah. I, I'm just sitting here listening. I don't have anything intelligent to add to this conversation. I'm blown away. This is all far and above and beyond me, and I'm just trying to make sense of everything, but I appreciate hearing all of it. And well, wait, wait, wait. When you say it's yeah. above and beyond you, I don't believe that for a nanosecond. Okay. So what are some <laughs> of the things that we've talked about that you may not quite understand? Well, I was looking at radio with pictures, looking for some of the images, and I'm not seeing everything. Am I? Yes, you are. Yeah. That, I am. Okay. That, that number 10 is a dangling participle. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm also interested in what's going on with Bennu crashing back to Earth, pieces of Bennu tomorrow. So that coverage starts at 10 o'clock. Uh, yeah, you're definitely onto something. I did post on Twitter or X. Um, Avi Loeb does not have a personal Twitter account, but the Galileo Project does. So I told him you guys were talking about him tonight, issuing him a challenge. Um, 
so that's out there. Well, I have tried for what six years, seven years. I started this what back in 2014 with the Pluto flyby. I've been at this a long time. He has never responded to me. We had one brief conversation. He said it was too late at night. You know, yeah. ten o'clock here. He's he's back east. He's Boston, Cambridge. Uh, I thought to myself, well, if you're trying to change the world and introduce ET artifacts, the least you could do would be to take a nap. And, of course, he's been on George. He's been on Clyde. He's been everywhere. He will not come on the show. So I have a feeling it has to do with Oumuamua, but I can't be certain. But I do have contacts, you know, one hops, as we used to call them, people I can talk to and they can talk directly to him. By hook or by crook, and with the help of this audience, we're going to get Loeb to take the appropriate position and test the hypothesis, given that so far, every single member of the panel who's been on says they see the artifacts, they see the micro-machines, they see the geometry, and I didn't handpick you. I just, you know, we've got people who frankly don't see it, and we have one of those with us tonight, I think. Um, do you want to come on and sign in? Uh, you got to give my name. Oh, well, I didn't want to put you in a rough spot. Barbara does not, at least as of yesterday, did not see what we're talking about. Has anything changed? Barbara Honiger. Well, um, first off, don't put words in my mouth, please. Um, but I am impressed with number seven. And I believe that's the first photograph that you sent to John Brandenburg. Mm-hmm. That, that is that is very interesting. Um, my first thought was, why couldn't all of these thousands of thin slices of these, uh, these are moon rocks, correct? These are moon rock brushes. Yeah. yeah. Why, why couldn't artificial intelligence be applied to, even though they're thin, thin slices, uh, for looking for patterns across these Well, things. of course they can. And that's why what Nelson said at the pre-press conference one hour on Thursday about the study and the setting up of the UAP office and all that, he said AI and ML, and I had to look up ML, it's machine learning, in other words, they're dependent overwhelmingly on looking at what we already know is out there with AI because AI is the new God. Notice that Barbara does not trust humans, but she will trust a computer to tell her that something is artificial. That's how far we have come. That's not fair to me, Richard. Oh, I'm, to say I don't trust I am I'm being a little facetious, dear. Come on, we know each other You're long enough. You're being very facetious. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, but anyway, um, I am impressed with number seven. There's something extremely unusual about that. That that multi, it looks like a multifaceted jewel. It definitely does not look natural. With wires, which are three dimensional, they're 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 cylindrical. And one of them. Well, I don't know about wires, but well, look, but, look. See, you need to understand what light does when it hits geometry, and that's where most of our educations were woefully deficient. You know, some of us have been doing a lot of you know post whatever work. But most people look at these things and they have no basis for even understanding what they're looking at, let alone its three-dimensional nature. Well, that's my point. Um, it seems to me that maybe AI, and I don't think we have to wait for somebody else. It seems to me that there should be 
some kind of AI program that you yourself uh, could probably get online and apply to, for instance, number seven, to try to pull out of this thin slice, um, what are the possible three-dimensional geometric uh, formation. Okay. I'm so glad you brought that up because let me, yeah. let me give you a little more background of how I intend to approach the analysis. <clears throat> Every time you do a thin section of a rock, a thin slice, the rock is, is deficient by one slice of itself, right? Mm-hmm. If you do enough slices, you literally section the entire rock into a huge collection of thin sections, right? Right which are like cross-sections of a three-dimensional something buried in the rock, in the matrix. That's exactly my point. I think so, you should be able to reconstruct so if the you, three-dimensional exactly. object. Now, is NASA willing to sacrifice a rock or two and thin-section the entire thing to build up a three-dimensional image? It doesn't have to because you can do the same thing now with X-rays, with X-ray fluorescence, with you know, um, beam analyzers. In other words, you uh, basically thin sectioning is the inverse of what we call 3D printing, which is made up in a machine of a matrix, putting coatings down, letting them set, putting another coating down, et cetera, et cetera, right? So this is just the yeah. reverse. And whatever a computer can create in a, in a 3D, you know, machine, then the same kind of AI intelligence could deconstruct from taking thin sections that don't even involve physically attacking the rock. You could do this with high energy X-ray beams or, or, or you know, uh, gamma rays maybe. In other words, you would get an idea and you'd be able to rotate it in 3D on a screen what the hidden matrix of the rock is concealing in the way of inclusions, full three-dimensional inclusions, which might in fact be a much bigger machine that would be the size of a rock, which is like a foot or right. so. No, I, I understand. Computer tomography. tomography. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, exactly. I have, a, I have hmm. a comment and a question, um, and then I'll you can turn it over to somebody else. Um, my comment is I, I just wanted to remind you, um, you opened, you were close to opening the show tonight um, by by mentioning this very strange experience um, with the guy with the duster at NASA. (laughs) And I don't think you said who this guy was. I don't remember his name. It's been so many. What category was he? He was was supposed to be a news person that was being squared around to other news people because that was what we call our press credentials. You you signed in like, you know, the, 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 the Stansville shopper. Back in yeah. those days, NASA was so eager to have it, what it was doing covered, it accredited everybody who had a pretense of a news credential. So no, I don't. So rem- what category was he? Was he mainstream media? No, 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 no. He was this Western-looking dude with a with a port. He had he had like a literal canvas bag. Pull out these press releases and hand oh. them to everybody that that Bristow introduced him to personally. So he well, Bristow take, must have known what was in the press release. Of course he did. Yeah. It was part of NASA's planting the meme. So when we get to tonight, people will say, oh, we never went to the moon. I mean, Kinthea had a show oh, with, with uh, a couple of weeks ago with Bart Seibrill 
who claims to this day that we never went to the moon. Well, the right. Russians brought back samples, and we compared their samples and our samples. We said, we'll show you ours if you show you yours. And the Russians knew we went to the moon because they monitored all our transmissions. <laughs> yes. Right. I have one other – hold on. Go ahead. I, have one Go other, ahead, I just want to make a footnote here that last night we had a show with Morningstar and Robert Gibran and also some – Information from a friend for the counter. Oh, ho, oh, oh. ho. I'm not the Robert. I'm the Ron. Yeah. I no. said Ron and Robert as yeah. a counter. There you go. Previous show. So we were doing bookends, both sides of the topic. Back to you, Absol- Barbara. Absolutely. Yeah, well, I, do, I just wanted to make one other comment, and that is um, also close to the beginning of tonight's show. You mentioned, um, you mentioned uh, of course, Apollo 11. Uh, which was in conjunction with this guy with a duster passing out these uh, these strange press releases. Mm-hmm. And um, I just want to remind everybody on previous shows, um, I've done at least two of the other side of midnight shows on uh, the interview that I did uh, with uh, with the with the uh, Navy officer who was the Navy's weatherman at Pearl Harbor. Uh, at the time of Apollo 11, and um, and as you know, uh, he literally saved the Apollo 11 astronauts Neil Armstrong and the other two from certain death upon splashdown by checking the weather over the pre-programmed splashdown sites, and they determined he determined using the Corona satellite <laughs> that. You know, they the Corona satellite was turned towards the moon, right? Um, he they used the Corona satellite photography uh, to determine that over the pre-programmed splashdown location, there was what was called a vertical 250 mile an hour vertical uh, whirlwind called a screaming eagle formation that would have completely sh- torn apart their parachutes and they would have died upon splashdown and so um he was able to change to get the location changed because synchronistically uh he still was cleared for the corona satellite program and he got the uh splashdown location changed a little bit further to the east uh and uh this this information uh, finally was able to be published 30 years afterwards. It had been classified for 30 years. And he came into my office at the Naval Postgraduate School um, shouting out, I need a journalist. And I, he was ushered into my <laughs> office. I was a senior military affairs journalist at the Navy Postgraduate School here in Monterey. And I got the story. Uh, and, I, and I'm going to, to send to Keith um, the uh, the article that was published in a DOD publication that I wrote based upon that, um, and his name was was Navy Captain Sam Houston, directly uh, this direct descendant of the Sam Houston. In the <laughs> well, good. Wow. Good. Yeah. Uh, Richard, uh, Barbara, Robert, anybody that'll listen. Uh, there's a uh, detail about the uh, Avi Loeb's evidence that uh, I haven't heard anybody consider. Well, John's the perfect person. Go for it. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, one of the things we can do in a lab with metal samples is determine if it's something like uranium. They actually have that catalog. They know where every place on Earth is, every single mine that produces it. And so they could run those tests on if there's uranium in there and see if it was terrestrially uh, originated. Oh, oh, and very good, very good. They can do the same thing with the lithium too. Yeah, there you I go. Think that's, I think that's very important because my very first take on that uh, was that this could be a cover story, that, uh, that this is perhaps an Israeli um, nuclear-powered object, oh, uh, and on. that it's a really good cover story. I'd like to say uh, something about item number seven from Richard. Okay. My first impression immediately when I saw that uh, large object in the upper left-hand corner, which you say had the wire, mm -hmm. I said to myself, that looks like a piece of crystal memory. And so... Yeah, it yeah, does. Yeah. I, Microchip, a microchip in, in the, the recent Breccia, the last piece I sent you, and I think that that is uh, crystal memory, and so you may be finding pieces of a gigantic computer or a microcomputer that was uh, obliterated and compacted in that Breccia sample. That's all. Mm. That's, that's a very interesting idea. Okay, we've literally got about a minute till the break. Does anybody have something you want to leave as a cliffhanger for the next uh, segment? Sure. The, wait, you keep talking about wires, and you know I'm on board with this. I said, hey, that looks like a replicator chip. But the uh, you do find crystals with uh, intrusions that look like fibers and or wires. I've got some sitting not too far from me on my shelf here right now. So that they might not be wires. The rest of it I'm uh, fine with. Sure. Well, if they're not, remember, an ion beam microprobe literally uh, thermalizes a sample like this on a microscope stand or in a vacuum and reads off at the atomic level the composition of everything that you point the beam at and makes a recording, spectrographic. And then you can do chromatography. You can do um, all kinds of physical analysis. So. If we're looking at crystals, it will show up in the analysis. If we're looking at machines, that will show up. And Loeb is perfectly positioned because every sample, every 842 pounds NASA brought back is by definition not, you know, under some kind of national security, whatever. It's public domain and it needs to be publicly analyzed. Okay, we are at the... One way you could pitch this to him, by the way, is say, look for evidence of extraterrestrial and extrasolar materials on the moon, because they can tell by the isotopes. Yeah, they of course. They can tell that the iron isotopes <clears throat> in the sample they got were not from this solar system. Well, that's been part of the discussion we're going to have when we come back from the break. My guest this morning, John Brandenburg, and the um, entire Enterprise Mission team is practically showed up here, which is very good. Um, we will continue this discussion. I will give out phone numbers if you want to join us by phone and through blog talk and you want to ask a, a pissy question of myself or any of the panelists. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. <laughs> Thank you. 
website as midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode. Two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And we're having a small circuit problem there. Let me do this. There we are. Live radio, folks, backstage. Richard, I'm going to have to, I, I, I can give you about another 15 minutes and then I'm going to have to, I'm fading. Okay. Well, you've <laughs> done more than yeoman, you've done more than yeoman service because you brought a pedigreed PhD to the conversation who looks at what I've been presenting and says, they're yeah, well, artifacts. A, a very reasonable interpretation to me, given the scenarios that one can easily imagine have occurred on the moon. Hmm. Uh, Ruggiero just sent me a note. Is, is Ruggiero on the line? Is he on, on with the rest of the panel? Good morning. Can you hear me? Yeah, a little, speak up a little louder. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes, yes. I'm, I'm. Yes, yes. Hello, everyone. Hello, John. Okay. You are saying you cannot see the wire, right? I cannot see the wire, Richard, okay. unless let it's me, at the bottom. Let me door. show you exactly where it is. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're looking at number seven, right? Yeah. You clicked on number seven, and it's big now on your screen. Yeah, it's big. You see the big. bottom left-hand part of the artifact, the highly geometric kind of uh, uh, tannish. Yeah. Okay. The, the, look the at the bottom. look at the little white oval, just to mm-hmm. the bottom left of it, with something draped bit. across it. Yeah, the bit that's bisected it through the middle. Yep, yep. Okay, that little thing bisecting that little oval, that Mm -hmm. is one of the wires. It's three-dimensional. You can see the shadow. It's a cylinder. And then at the very bottom, it's trailed off as a little thread that disappears at the edge of the white oval. Now, the white ovals are caused by the saw slicing through this thin section. And diamond Mm -hmm. saws create heat. So in the process of sawing this little thin section off the, the, the moon rock, the mm. heat melted the wire and caused that little driblet right to the edge of the white oval. That's okay. the melted wire. I see it. And it goes up, and then it branches, and it crosses, and there's another cylinder going down, and one at right angles. And, yeah, this is a three-dimensional – I think Robert may have nailed it – it looks like some kind of microchip. Yeah, when when we spoke like last week when I first saw these images, um, I said to you it looks like um, a lead stained glass window. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah it does. And yeah. the way and the way that you put together a stained yeah. glass window, 
is the, the craftsmen use lead because it's low melting point. And if they have to replace mm-hmm. a pane, it's not a pain to replace the pain. See what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I lost my friend. I'm, I'm very but look at the rest of the image. The more you look, yeah, the more you're going to see. It's incredible. I didn't even know that was a was sliced across. I thought that was just the face of, of the No, no. This uh, is the, the See, if, if, if we did enough thin slices, as Barbara said, mm-hmm. we could reconstruct the whole thing because we're just looking. Think of it mm-hmm. as, a, as a, well, it's the inverse of the 3D printing. But it's also what you do in in MRI machines with I think yeah, onset of MRI scans. Yeah, or, or, or you know, three dimensional tomography is a technical name. All of these tools on Earth, we got a thousand pounds. All we need is some guy to to run point. And in, if if yeah. you know, until Loeb says I'm not the guy. I'm going to let him run with this because he's got everything in place. He's got the technicians. He's got the technology. He's got the microscopes, the electron microscopes. He's got everything. All he needs is a arm guard to bring him some samples from Houston to whatever lab he's using. And they stand there as he runs the experiments and then takes them back to Houston. And I guarantee you the world changes if that's done. Yeah. Is that hanging inside that uh, opening on that parallel lines that are in the inside that uh, opening? Are you talking number seven? Yeah. The, yeah, I'm. The, I'm. They it's might like be. Writing. Yeah, it, it might it, be. It characters. might. It might. Wouldn't that be astonishing? Richard, I want to bring up a, a piece. I want to go to. No, Keith has a really good point here because I hadn't really looked carefully, but that does look at almost could be writing. Go ahead, go ahead, Brigero. Um, Did you get the email? You did get the email because you replied when I sent you over that fascinating um, Spanish podcast YouTube video. I gave you the screenshot. Go ahead. Um, And um, you mean you mean from the Chandrayan uh, control room? Well, firstly the. We'll backtrack a bit. The screenshot I sent you of NASA's wonderful uh, podcast in Spanish shows a bizarre, doesn't name, it's not named a planet, there's um, mysteries of the solar system, let's call it that. But it's got this very bizarre moonscape with a few plants on it. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I like this. Yeah, I, re- I remember the, the, the graphic. It was The colors are like what we see on the moon. By the exactly. way, did, did, did anybody happen to notice our... Um, our our uh, banner for tonight. If you go to the top of the guest page or you go to the main page, it's sitting there. This is an Apollo 17 image of something called Tracy's Rock, because Gene Cernan, when he was when he was investigating it, that's him on the left, uh, the astronaut next to the rock, and the mm-hmm. rover is on the right. First of all, notice the color. Yeah. Don't you find the color bizarre? Isn't the moon supposed to be gray? Is that a real picture? Of course it's a real picture. All I've done is increase the saturation to bring out what they've been hiding for 50 years. The moon is a stunningly brilliant, you know, prism dappled place (laughs) with all kinds of extraordinary artistic, hint, hint, Kintia, colors. Colors that have no business being there. Go ahead. Wait a minute. I'm not. I mean, I'm not if I so. 
if I go to number five, okay. and we go back to the colours on that picture, which I know Keith's going to, to add uh, later, because no one would have seen um, the image unless they've been on the NASA website. So, to your point, number five brings in all those stunning colours that we've been seeing on the Chandrayaan mission. Mm -hmm. And that image that you just posted on, on, on the title screen, they're all in there on number five. And yeah. um, we see those reflections back on Chandrayaan, which they showed on that first video, which was on the Economic Times mm -hmm. from the previous shows, which shouldn't have been there, and on the Chandrayaan flyby of the moon when they're coming down ready to land. You're seeing all these lovely, you know, reflective prismatic colours coming through. And there they are on your little sample. And um, number eight, I don't even know what to make a manga movie. And, um, you know, I think I'll, I'll, I'll open the floor back to the team. I think these rocks are outstanding and interesting. Uh, I'd love to hear everybody's further comments. Okay. So who else have we have we called up yet? Well, I will jump oh, in. Oh, there you are. There you are. The colors are amazing, of course. Any artist would love to paint these. And... Um, I guess each color is reflecting a different kind of material that it's made of. Well, and not exactly, because when you do thin sections, which have to be literally, you know, hundredths of a of a millimeter in thickness, otherwise the rock is, is opaque, if you use polarized light, the light will refract through certain crystals with certain colors and other crystals with different colors. So it's not really a pigment. It's more the fundamental interaction of light and the mineral and the thickness and the way light waves bounce around and interfere with each other. It's more like the colors you see on a soap bubble than it is in terms of pigment. But Why are the colors between eight and the others so different? Because of different samples, different materials, different rocks. So it's not the lighting that's being applied oh, to it. No, 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 no. The, to do thin sectioning and to get petrology analysis, you basically keep everything else constant, thickness of your sample, light sources, polarization, all that, because the difference will show you different minerals reflecting or interacting with light different ways. Yeah, number eight is a totally different rock. Again, only from Apollo 16, it's like I've got this huge candy store, and I've had no time to go through the shelves. <laughs> you know how that feels. Oh, I do. <laughs> so, yeah, I take, take a look. You know. number seven. Say again? I said I have one more observation about number seven. Okay. So we're looking at the, um, what I call the crystal memory. If you go directly to the right, one below you see a brown circle, but if you go directly to the right, as I look into that, it looks to me like a section through a rusty bolt. Exactly. It's a nut and bolt. Bingo, bolt, Robert. Right? Bingo. Right. Yeah. Right? Fascinating stuff. For, well, bolt. again, none of this should be here. All those white things, those are mm -hmm. three-dimensional objects sliced by the diamond saw. So you're looking at the tops of them, and you can actually see, because the angle is not exactly uh, 90 degrees, they have three-dimensional character, like the one on the far right. That looks like a big wire. Look at the, look at the upper left-hand portion of the 10 o'clock position. And it's like a cross-section, and it's overexposed. 
because of course the the, the light value in this crystal is or this this sample is w way higher than you can represent on one screen. But if you look carefully at all of these, and again, I picked them totally at random. It's like the first three I found, and it was like, what are the odds that I'm going to pick three random cross-sections of lunar rocks and find damn artifacts in all three? Yes. That tells I me don't we, like to point out. Go ahead. I'd also, I'd also like to point out where you see the ones that look like perfect circles. Yeah. Those, I believe, are where you've sliced through a wire. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's why they're perfect circles. Mm -hmm. Now, once again, in the crystal, uh, crystal memory, as I'll call it, if you look into each of the panes, it looks like there are three-dimensional uh, printed circuits and objects within each pane, especially the top one, which almost seems to have a pentagram in it with parallel lines cutting across the apex of a, of a scalene triangle. Are we talking See? number six? No, number still number seven. Fascinating, number seven. Okay. In the uppermost pane, uh, it looks like a scaling triangle with parallel lines cutting through it, almost making a star. Yep, yep. And the lower left uh, section looks like it has another crystal embedded within the crystal. It's fascinating. It's a fantastic thing. It so if like this audio mom... modulation... Say again? It kind of looks like audio modulation a waveform or audio modulation can't make it out but it's it looks like it is an audio modulation so and it's imprinted of some sort well hang on a second hang on if if the materials were created the way i think they are which is shock from meteor impact the shock waves are going to thaw melt and then refreeze and you may actually get a frozen section of a shockwave in the matrix. Don't everybody speak at once? I just say it's possible and that, uh, that what... Uh, yeah, but see, Jesus. This, all right, exactly. The thing I'm saying is either Loeb or someone else or we, this team, is going to pursue this to the ends of the planet we're going to get public confirmation of what's in public-owned lunar samples with zero national security nonsense around them. Zero. And if we don't, remember, we've got some very interesting allies now in Congress. There's a certain congressman from Tennessee named Tim Burchett, who I think might be interested in seeing this given that he seemed so intrigued with Grush's uh, comments about spaceships and bodies the Congress had never been allowed to see. I wonder what David Sarita I don't think, I don't think about they'll tell us. Yeah, I don't, I don't think uh, Loeb. Okay, this is David Sarita. You hear me? Yes, yes. Okay, so... I, I've studied microelectronics in great detail, and one of the things you see versus studying, like everything under the microscope, right down to the crystal lattice on the periodic table, but we're not that small here at all, nope. has geometry, and every <coughs> element on the periodic table falls into different um, hexagonal, pyramidal, cubic, you know, body-centered cubic, face-centered yes. cubic, um, 
bromberhedral. So this doesn't look like anything like that. No, it doesn't. When you study like the birth of the transistor and the crystal oscillator, the way they make oscillators and transistors, John Bardeen, Will Shockley, and Will Bratton, finalized after going through many different types of transistors, the transistor that led to today's transistors. And the way they do it is you use multiple layers of different types of crystal and conductor, and your conductor will be either paramagnetic, diamagnetic, ferromagnetic materials because you would have these PNP and NPN, negative, positive, negative, and positive, negative, positive transistors in the early days. Today's transistors are down to two billionths of a meter. That's how small they are. That's two nanometers. That's two nanometers. So what they look like when the first transistors came out are similar to item seven in that you would put wafers of your conductor and then your crystal would be um, fused in between those wafers to trap vibrations in what are called oscillators. Crystal oscillators are your <coughs> frequency generators in your microelectronics. Your transistors used to be amplifiers and then they, they got into gates which are basically storing everything from you know, colors and and data and 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 the same way like a, a magnetic hard drive works. Again, you'll have these little chambers. What interests me about this structure is from years and years and years of studying microelectronics and materials, it has all these interesting angles. And I got my protractor out. Mm-hmm. I'm zoomed w- way in. And I'm zoomed way in. And when you zoom way in in Photoshop, there are so many angles within angles within angles. Exactly. If you go Big further goals. in, like go in on all those what look like chopsticks, and they have angles within them too. Like, and it's, oh my God, this is an interesting looking thing. And those angles you don't normally see in our microelectronics, but maybe... I can understand the, the power and the significance of discovering the angle between two charge plates in a crystal oscillator may be very profound and something we need to research. Because I'm measuring angles with my protractor here, and there are some pretty interesting numbers here in all these different angles. And okay. again, my favorite. This could. Go yeah. ahead, David. Go ahead. Well, I would say. From studying the history, if you study the history of the crystal oscillator and the transistor and resistors, which are you – know, have you seen those tiny, tiny little coils that were discovered in um, – I forget what part – in the Middle East they found samples of what could be um, extraterrestrial uh, micro material. Micro means millions of a meter material, and you see these tiny, tiny, tiny – clearly they are coils, and coils – Act as resistors, and resistors build up magnetic fields. Yeah, wait, 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 David. You, also, you just said extraterrestrial. See, if our history is a lot more interesting than we've been allowed to know, and there have been previous high-tech epics on Earth, then we could be looking on Earth not at ET samples, but our own samples. Human race, previous cultures, a million years old. That everything else is gone except for the elements. And if it's properly matrixed, maybe some geometry is preserved. Maybe. 
but it's much less prevalent than on the moon because on Earth, as Robert said or Ron said or somebody said, it keeps getting destroyed and destroyed and destroyed and melted and remelted and moved around and plate tectonics and erosion. The moon is passive, a huge museum by comparison. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd like to say something oh. about number seven again. Okay. From what from what Keith observed and what David said, and I've been thinking about this during the show, it occurs to me that there could be sounds embedded in each of those panes. And with the proper technology and equipment, we could hear sounds from each of those panes the way um, – Captain J.J. Adams heard the crow music in uh, <laughs> <laughs> Forbidden Planet. Look, we may find an actual – we have no idea what a 1,000 pounds of rocks from the moon, most of which have not been looked at, have not that been – one pain. Well, we need to reach that one pain. Wait, wait, is it Keith? Keith, yeah, go ahead. The one pain that's got the, 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 tra- the trapezoid type shape to it, the right. longest one, right. with the brown – that is audio modulation. We're looking at half of the waveform. If we could take that, we could probably decode it, and we'll, and we'll get some kind of audio out of it. Because oh that's God. what it is. That's, all that's exactly what I meant. Well, you can induce frequencies on them, and through feedback, they will resonate, and you can record that. Oh, the, 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 you could copy that and uh, rectify it so it's on a plane and play it through one of your sound... Uh, Up until tonight, our conversation, including ours, has been totally about remote sensing photographs, which show ancient civilization artifacts all over the damn solar system. But the turning point tonight is we now know where to find almost a thousand pounds of physical samples, most of which have not been touched. That was NASA's philosophy from the beginning put most of it away for when technology advances over 10, 20, 30, you know, half a century. Well, that's where we are tonight. We have incredible new technology which could tell us an infinite story about every one of those rocks and all the stuff in prison. All we got to do is open the damn doors and get someone to do the analysis. Well, Richard, you, you have more than Wait, wait, wait. I'm, I'm, I'm getting overlapping. Go ahead. I was going to say yeah, it has doctor, more than 1,000 pounds because Edgar Mitchell brought 800 pounds himself on, on Apollo 14. No, 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 no. None of the missions. Yes, yes, no, yes. no. Total poundage that we have from every mission is 842 pounds and change. But that's the thing that I got from Mitchell is he brought back 800 pounds, and most of it was limestone, and it showed that there was a lot of water on the moon. Send me a link. Send me a link. Because I remember I, I have kind of been immersed in this since Apollo. Yes, I know. So have I. And I knew Edgar Mitchell. And, um, then he obviously I misspoke. I published a monograph from the University of Tennessee. I would say that Mitchell misspoke because it's, the total is under 1,000 pounds from six missions. See, Richard, if that geometric structure on number seven is conductor and semiconductor material, mm-hmm. the, the probability that it's microelectronics or even – like the first transistors were big. You, you could see everything with your eye. Oh, yeah. And then they got smaller and smaller. And this isn't – we don't know what's the size scale of this photograph. 
What I'm saying is if there's conductor and semiconductor layers in there, the chance that it's, it's an electronic component is very high because nature doesn't do that very often. I mean, yes, it does. It's like granite, for example, would have mica, which is a dielectric, and it'll have quartz, and it'll have even uranium in it. But, I mean, it, the way it's structured, I mean, I've looked at crystals all my life, including under the microscope, and studied them. Um, it, the, if, if it, and if you talk to John Hutchison about this, who also has a wealth of experience, I mean, for example, a, a capacitor, right? A capacitor stores electric charges between wafers of conductor and semiconductive layers, and the Casimir effect, right? You're looking at at, at, but what's interesting about this guy is it's got all these angles and, and there. What has the Casimir effect got to do with it? Well, because when you when you when you build I, something, I have to step in occasionally. Yeah. Right. Go ahead. If Go ahead. you build something with wafers that are really close together, they can trap an electric charge between them, and the, the semiconductor material between those. Those darker lines, which could be a conductor material, would create a Casimir effect. But if if the plates touch, then the charge um, dissipates. Uh, basically, dissipates. It shorts out. Yeah. But there may yes. be something about angle in micro. If you look at our microelectronics, you don't see angles like this. But maybe there's something we're missing. Well, take, take about a look angles. at number eight. My favorite of the three I put up tonight is number eight because. It's, oh, I know. It's I shadowed. It. It's incredible. It's shadowed. It's three-dimensional objects. It's not crystals. It's machines. It's fractured, broken machines. There are cylinders. There are cones. There are right angles. There are plates. There's three-dimensional right angle geometry, like the one on the bottom left corner, just above the Enterprise mission logo. Uh, I mean, and again, this is totally at random. I didn't pre-select. I just bing, bing, bing. And looked at them and went, holy cow. It looks like yeah, there's your size scale. One millimeter is your size scale. On It shows you in the red line at the top. So, you know, a millimeter <clears> you can see. So this, remember, when they made the first transistors and crystal oscillators, you could see them at the millimeter size scale. And then, and then as the frequencies got higher... And like, you know how many transistors there are in an Intel chip? There's like three million transistors. Three Number eight billion. is filled with three-dimensional junk. Fractured, smashed junk. I know, but if you zoom in yeah. on that with an electron microscope, we might see, like you should see what oscillators look like today in an iPhone. You You have to get down to the billionth of a meter scale um, camera, electron microscope, to see the, the machine. I mean, the machine level, the mechanistic level today is so tiny, you need electron microscopes to see it. We're looking at one millimeter here. So each one of these very interesting looking pieces, if we could find out what each one of those different colors and the gray and the silver are made of. That's what ion right? microbeams will let you do. Uh, and if you see, like a if you, yeah, I, Richard, yeah. Richard, 
Can I stick something in here? Uh, is I looked through them, but I don't see it. Do you have a an unaltered version of the picture that's got the um, replicator chip on it, so that people can see what it looks like to the naked eye? Yeah, I could put it up, but it, you know, it, it's just darker. Well, I think that's important for evidentiary things because has anyone looked at the samples the Japanese brought back from their asteroid? I was surprised not to see one of those there. I would have put one up if not. There's at least one. Uh, you know, they sh remember they collected it out in the Australian outback and they showed everybody a tray of it before they even put it away and. Uh, I saw something that looked like that little um, replicator chip. Uh, I'm right. sorry, that's just what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ron, 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 we were at the bottom yeah. of the hour. Hang on, everyone. Of course. We'll bring Ron back and everyone else. Um, this is pretty important because I, I believe I'm getting a consensus that there's something really exquisitely unusual here. And I hear people making qualifiers like interesting. If I hear interesting one more time, <clears throat> it's more than interesting. We've got them. All we need now when the shouting dies away is a political process to get the truth before the American people and everybody else. And so for the last half hour, I want to talk about strategies. How do we take this to the next level? And no idea will be ruled too far out be discussed in the next half hour. You're on the other side of midnight on an historic show where our panelists agree overwhelmingly we're looking at ET artifacts that are interesting. We shall return.
And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go. God, this has been an incredibly fast show. I look at the clock and I'm thinking, wait a minute, there's something wrong. It's, it's, uh, we need more time. So we'll have more time. Obviously, we're going to do more of this when we get more data. And uh, I'm going to try a really interesting effort to get directly to Abby Loeb. Uh, I got close the other day with one of his secretaries. So we'll do that again, and we'll open up that hailing frequency, and we'll try several others. Uh, one of the things I do want to do, has there, is there anybody that has not had airtime uh, that would like to say something? And before we get into the important part, which is how do we take this to the next level? Because if this just sits here with us, it'll go nowhere. It's got to be democratized at a politically relevant level where it goes much further. And my best bet is, uh, is uh, Congressman Tim Burchett from, uh, from Tennessee. But if anybody has better ideas, lay them on the table. And I'll also give out our numbers. Let me, let me uh, give everybody a number. If you want to join our Mary Band tonight, if you've got something you want to say, a comment, a question, 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. One more time with feeling. 917-889-8802. And I think I heard uh, Ron clearing his voice. Uh, I don't know if I can clear my voice, but yeah, I'm out. I'm out here. Uh, I'm not sure where it fits into your options there, but uh, I'm bothered by one thing that relates to um, Dr. Loeb. His uh, his whole presentation is to convince everybody that he found something, which I'm certainly not saying he did not, uh, that he found something that was from outside the solar system. They make a big deal out of that without even mentioning Oumuamua. And this stuff was, you know, picked up locally. You know, there's no question that this, uh, this stuff was collected on the moon, on Ryugu, on Bennu that will, you know, will hopefully come down in a few hours safely in the um, uh, in uh, this Great Salt Lake area. Uh, and I think that's important because I think part of their, the NASA pitch is that, well, there might be aliens somewhere else, but nothing's happened here. And so if they typecast this as, oh, well, this is just somebody saying that there were aliens here, then they can sort of sidestep even uh, even solid, unarguable evidence like this uh, by saying, well, it's not from, you know, real extrasolar stuff. It's from uh, mistaken local stuff. Well, this is I'm, where our audience and the power of, you know, people – American citizens or global citizens comes in because if everybody in this audience tonight, just everybody in our audience were to send Abby Loeb through the Galileo website, an email and saying, for God's sake, look at the damn stuff from the moon. There's machines in there and you can test that will have an effect politically because Loeb wants to lead the charge. He wants to be the white knight riding on the horse with the big lance that leads humanity into an interstellar civilization receptivity. We are now giving him on a silver platter with gold handles and platinum edges an extraordinary entree into that conversation to be the hero that he wants to be. The only question is, 
is he going to pick up the phone? Richard? Yeah. Yeah, is um is Laura still still on? Sure is. Good. Um I I just like to ask Laura, if you haven't already, Laura, um yeah. be sure and um you know, I think you said there was a Facebook page or a Twitter account um, for the Galileo Project, right? Yes, it's yeah. on Twitter. Um, be, be sure and let Avi Loeb know that this program is being uh, re- rebroadcast tomorrow night. Right. Yep. I'll make a note of that. Yeah, I'll do yeah. it right now, actually. And, and maybe send the direct link. Uh, Richard, will the, um, will the link to tonight's show... Um, uh, will will the audio be available at the same link tomorrow night, or will it be a different link? That's a technical question for Keith. Keith, what's the answer? Keith? Uh, we can send Laura a link. Yeah. What was, what was the question? Yeah, I'll get it. And, and I'll actually do it tomorrow uh, because it's, you know, 1, 2 o'clock in the yeah, morning. Yeah, you want it to mm-hmm. go in about 8 a.m. Okay. I will yeah. do that. Oh, she's it, that's that's her midday, eight a.m. <laughs> right, exactly. Hey, Richard, exactly. Richard, yes. I'm zoomed in really far now, and I can see a coil. I, oh, is, super! Because John, I'm um, zoomed in. I I, I think Brandenburg is left. Is, is, is John left? I'm not looking at the right screen. Which image is that? Yes, John. John had to leave. Right. Okay. When I first well, uh, three three days ago, when I ran this stuff by John, not knowing what he would react, the first thing he said was, "Do you see any gears?" And I said, "John, why are you back in the 18th century? Interstellar extraterrestrials do not use gears; they use friction fields and manipulation of the torsion field and all that. But if you found a coil." A coil is a coil is a coil, and you can't build electronics without coils. Yeah, I can. Super. I can. The way you do this is you take it in Photoshop, adjust your brightness. Even those bright cross sections, you can really drop the brightness down to the structure. But in the lines, in in all these angular um, lines in number seven in the geometry, uh, I believe. I'm looking at a coil there. Now, I've seen these tiny, tiny coils, like I said, in, in material that has been retrieved. Um, in, in, uh, and those coils I'll actually have to get pictures of for a follow-up because they're so small, the size scale of those coils that have been found in extraterrestrial crash retrieved material are clearly coils. They're not random um natural kind of coiling or spiraling but i've the fact that you know the, the probably the size scale that i'm looking at right now the fact that those slices that are all like chopsticks that form all these angles i'm looking at one of them right now some of them have a, a per, violet purple cell structure hmm which is very odd for if it was pure conductor material. It, it's got there's there's more structure within the structures. If you well if remember you the, in, the, the the so-called smart material that uh, art was analyzed years ago called arts parts. One of the things that stood out was it was made of uh, micro layers, a layered composite right. technology that can only mm-hmm. really be done in a vacuum and probably zero g. 
which indicated an extraterrestrial technology that at the time that Art got it, we didn't have on Earth. So yeah, I, those I, layers are conductors. Well, I can I, I, I can well imagine that we're dealing with a technology which goes down and down and down, and each layer does something else, and there's cross linkages and communication and pulses and timing and resonance. I mean, in other words, we're looking at a thousand pounds of stunning ET technology on Earth, and we know it's a dream. I I think I, Abby Loeb's the wrong guy. I think William Tiller, if he's still alive, because he's a and Gary Nolan, who's a, at Stanford. You need a microelectronic expert to to take this on. And Avi Loeb is not that guy. I mean, he he might act as a as a as a manager of the project and get microelectronic. Well, experts, given that politically he's mm. what, what was that? Is that Ron? No, I'm on I'm on your side, Richard. I I, I think Avi Loeb is the perfect choice. Well, we start with the political, and then we yeah, move, worth- and then we move in a multidisciplinary, simultaneous front to contact other people that we know. David knows a hell of a lot of people. He's been around the the, the high atmospheric, very thin stratosphere of this, you know, government technology and development for decades. So whoever you can reach out to, everyone take this as a mission. Take one person who you might think could open the door to getting public analysis and confirmation, because that's the key. We don't want anybody doing all this behind closed doors and saying, oh, we didn't find anything. No way. And legally, we've got the NASA charter on our side. This has to be done in public. Also, Go ahead. Fuji is about to come out with an affordable 100 megapixel SLR. Oh my it's it's going to come out in the next few weeks. And if you photograph the same sample at 100 megapixels and you do what I'm doing now, you're going to get pretty incredible data. Keep I in mind, I did not parse. I did not look for the best resolution. I didn't look for you know, TIFF images as opposed to JPEG. I just quick grabbed three that looked to me eyeball, and the more I looked, the more I found, and they're totally unselected, they're random, and if you got three out of three, how much does that mean for the 842 pounds of samples? It means they're chock full of incredible breakthroughs. Incredible. Yeah, there's layers within layers, and even the resolution you have here, the JPEG, and I can see... Like I say, coil structures, cell structures. I love number eight. My favorite tonight is number eight. I know the others are more winsome for some, but number eight, look at all that three-dimensional geometry. That's not crystallography. That has nothing to do with the way minerals melt together in a volcano. You're not that far yet. Yeah, you're not down that small. I, I can look at electron microscope of uranium and there's you when you see rand it's really interesting when you look at natural crystals it doesn't matter what it is on the periodic table it's it doesn't look like this it in, until you get right down to the crystal lattice scale yeah you'll see geometry at that scale that's atoms building molecules um, but when you – at this scale, we're at one millimeter. To see this kind of geometry at one millimeter um, in natural crystals – yeah, of course you can see natural crystals. You can't. 
but it doesn't look like this. This isn't what um, just doesn't look like this. This almost looks like scrap metal. It yes, it does because it's fragments. Like, it's pounded. Yeah. Look, back during the Cold War, remember the the Air Force wanted umpteen million nuclear weapons, and at some point the other side said, "Wait a minute, how many times can you bombard the Soviet Union before you're simply making the rubble bounce?" What we have here is an example of impacts over billions of years that have made the lunar rubble bounce. And every bounce makes it smaller and fragmented and tinier and tinier. I'm surprised we have things that are of this size, given the nature of the lunar surface. But I will add, I want everybody to go to my number nine. I found this the other day, serendipitously, not looking for it at all, looking for something else. It turns out this is a 1999 total eclipse photograph taken during the eclipse across in August, August 11th, uh, Europe. And it was taken by a German uh, astronomer with the ESO observatory, taken somewhere in mid-Europe, probably in Germany. And it was taken through a Polaroid filter, two crossed Polaroid filters, which for some reason he figured out to do. And what you see there is the signature of cross Polaroids on the corona but the moon is surrounded in this particular photo with a stunningly forward-scattering light ring, which is the damn lunar dome. We're dealing with a technology in the dirt, in the regolith, in the breccias, in the rocks the astronauts brought back. We're dealing with a range of technologies from people who build little houses, you know, like Quonset huts, all the way up to the folks who redesigned the solar system and left domes around at least the moon and Ganymede for us to wander about in and wonder who did it. So we have a stunning opportunity here. I want to devote the last 15 minutes to how do we get this across the finish line? No ideas are too far out. Who wants to begin? Barbara, you're our political expert. How do we get people in the know to pay attention? Well, uh, first, allow me to say that, um, if I understood correctly, I agree with David Sarita. I don't think we should put all of our eggs into the avilobe basket. My intuition does not trust him. Well, we'll know pretty soon if he ignores this, because no scientist in their right mind can look at these photos and go, ah, nothing to see here, move along. No, that's Wait a minute, trust him in what sense? Yeah, yeah, okay, good. Hold, hold on. That's not what I mean. Um, what I, uh, you, you hinted at it, Richard, if I understood your, you correctly, your hint earlier in the show tonight. And that was uh, when you said uh, you asked a question of someone else um, to the effect that, well, don't you think that uh, the Department of Defense chose Abby Loeb to go look at this thing? to follow the track to where yeah, it crashed. Yeah, yep, yep. I, 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 I think that it is passingly strange that the U.S. Defense Department would choose Abby Loeb. Uh, well, how do you know they did? Well, that's what Richard Well, that was my hypothesis because what that are they – That was Richard's hypothesis. It's kind of like my, my uh, Casablanca reference earlier. You know, the other great one, you know, all the gin joints in all the world, she came into mind, that kind of thing. 
of all the people, round up the usual suspects. Of all the people the DOD could have given that data to, yeah. Loeb is the guy who wants to be Mr. E.T. extraterrestrial interstellar. It's been out there since 20 – I forget when they published it, but nobody could organize the resources on a short time frame. And you know how much it takes to actually mount a million-dollar expedition to the deep sea? That's it was stuff a million and a half, but he got he got it out of the working funds of Harvard. Well, that's what he claimed. I heard him. Yeah, we, we don't I, know. That, that's what he's claiming. Why would he lie? That's easy. Because these guys lie getting up in the morning and going to bed at night. Come on. It's second nature. You don't rise to that level without lying. Look at Carl. Carl was a double agent selling me one thing and telling the public another thing, et cetera, et cetera. So look, I'm politically choosing Loeb to be the point person because if he has a personal stake at being immortal in history, this will give it to him. If he's running on short orders, we will find out. If it's not him, it will be somebody else, but I would open the hailing frequencies to Loeb first because he has positioned himself on the runway to be this kind of person doing this kind of thing and making this kind of discovery. Well, so we my, just our, my, point is, my point is you should always have a second opinion. I just don't trust having Abby Loeb have the first and only first take on the analysis. I think there should be someone else simultaneously who's qualified. Can I suggest, can, can I suggest yeah. somebody? Yes, I, yeah. I don't know. I could be way yeah. off, but I, I'd like to bring up once again, I know I've mentioned him many times, but Farouk Elbaz, who is a professor at Boston University, he is an archaeologist, and he runs mm -hmm. the department, the, sorry, the Center for Remote Sensing. He and, and 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 he, he used to he used to work for NASA. Yeah, well, he he was NASA. he was called in the in the astronaut corps the king, which was a English version of Pharaoh because he's Egyptian. Mm -hmm. He Farouk El Baz picked ultimately all the landing sites for every Apollo mission. Mm -hmm. He was head of that team. If, could, could we could we hear the rest of what Laura was trying to say? No, th that's what I was trying to say because earlier Richard said everybody pick someone, and I had contacted yeah. him, his assistant, a couple of years ago, a few years ago. I was trying to book him for the show, and then I never followed up with it because she said he had a new book coming out. I need to find out if he came out with that new book. Doesn't matter. But what is, is it? The, is it the case that because he's an academic, he's not going to be open to this sort of thing? I mean, he he. This Center for Remote Sensing promotes the use, it says, of space technology in the fields of archaeology, geography, and geology. Well, Farouk Elbaz, who I've been following ever since I was, you know, part of CBS and Apollo and all that way back then, he not only picked the landing sites, but after the landings, after the Apollo program closed, he would give interviews to Argosy Magazine or Omni or whatever public outlet, and he would hint so precisely as Emily Dickinson that there was a lot more about the lunar missions that was not yet ready to tell. Like he's been sitting on the secrets for 50 years. He might be willing now to, because it's permission time, he might be willing to go the next step given that there's a physical set of objects that can be analyzed, no opinions, straight science, they're machines. 
Why not do a petition, Laura, at change.org to get Abby Loeb to look at it? So if you get enough people signing a petition to get Abby Loeb to look at this. Yeah, I, 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 mm-hmm. I, I'm, on the, I'm on the side of not trusting Dr. Loeb. I don't know. There's just something a well, little well, shady well, about well, it, but I'm going all, after we, El Baz. We all, we all agree. Like, the, point is, the point is that sometimes politics makes weird bedfellows. Given Loeb's <laughs> position – Given what he claims he wants to do, if we offer him the opportunity and he says, I'm not associating with you ruffians, then we'll know. If he takes the information and it disappears and a paper appears in a year with his name on it and nobody else's, we'll know more. The point is it's no single point failure. I only bring him up with a challenge because he is the most visible point person who claims – on the record, this is what he wants to do. I'd, I'd like, like to, to say something here. about this. Wait a second, Robert. Hold on. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh. We've been having a pretty uh, inflammatory conversation about Loeb. I don't know that we should send this show now as it I, is, unless I, we well, it and send him an edited show file. Uh, I, would, I act- think I can counteract it. <laughs> Go ahead. I think I can counteract and uh, counteract what's been said, Cynthia, because I kind of like him. Well, but that doesn't discount all the conversation that's going that's gone yeah, on. Yeah, but Cynthia, if I may say, oh. if I may say, when you reach Loeb's level, you are light years past like and you know being liked and not being thin-skinned and all that. He's had a million horrible things said about him. All we've said tonight is the the the, the proof will be quoting my grandmother, in the pudding. If we offer him the opportunity and he turns it down, it means he's not as smart as he thinks he is. Well, I don't think – I think you should re-listen to this before you say what you think. Well, who are Loeb's – who does Loeb trust himself as an associate researcher? And maybe there's a community of researchers that that he – Well, he's made himself all part of the UAP conversation. Kind of like, go ahead. He he only invited certain people to be part of this Galileo project. So all of those people, he's got. She's right. And he put that together in in response to the fact that he was getting heat from his bosses at Harvard. Because since he's tenured, they couldn't fire him, but they wanted to. And that was all before it was, you know, he had made very much noise. Do, we, I mean, do the, we know, Ron, whether he was fired from the directorship of the observatory at Harvard or he decided to resign and devote time to this? Uh, all I know is he's he has tenure. They can't fire him. Yeah, but, so that but, probably but, but he, would have applied to that. But well, he, I'm but, going but, on the – but he he lost his he lost his directorship of the observatory, which was his key professionally into astrophysics, space science, et cetera, et cetera, and why he got involved mm-hmm. in the Amuamua thing in the first place, given it was discovered by a telescope on Hawaii uh, first. Well, all I can say is I'm a pretty good I'm pretty good at analyzing people when I listen to them. And when I heard him, you know, do another show last week, uh, I was impressed. I was all prepared to not be. You know, I went in with my hackles up already, and uh, I thought, okay, I uh, he sounds solid to me. Yes, he's running an agenda, 
but I don't think we should discount him just because he already has connections. Well, I'm not saying – go ahead, My comment on Loeb is if you want him to do what you want, contact the government of Israel because that's who controls him. Oh, see what I mean? This doesn't help, Robert. No, well – if you want to help from somebody, you try and be nice about them. There's no reason. You, the, no reason to try and paint them with a stain. Well, let me, let me, no sense. Ron, let me kind of recontext that. We're not no. asking him for help. I'm asking him to take over the damn thing and do it. If he decides Yo, not no, to, you, if he decides not to, it will be for his own reasons that have nothing to do with whether we like him or don't like him or are suspicious or are not suspicious. We are light years beyond like. That's not what runs this secret government. Like is what not was the part title of, the of this episode? The Avi Loeb Challenge? Yeah, well, the challenge is you step up to an opportunity. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. You weren't challenging. You're not challenging Jim to do a, a duel with muskets. No. Nope. You know, you're saying, you're saying <laughs> will, you, will you add this to your catalog of information and uh, See, it's so your... easy if you're in the club and he's in the club. And he's got the yeah. staff. He had 20 people that help him analyze the damn you know, meteorite from the bottom of the Pacific. He has the permission. And he's already broken ground. He's already in public. He's already leading. All he has to do is add this to his sample size and the, and the benefits to low personally in human history are incalculable if ego plays a part in science, which it does. Yeah, it certainly does in professorship, and yet I would have signed up for his classes. The thing I wasn't is, Richard, going to. The thing is, Richard, I think Ron nailed it. I know it's only 60 seconds left, and that is they're deflecting everything away from our solar system. This goes back to 2017 and Representative Dana, Dana Rohrabacher when he asked the NASA officials, mm-hmm. "Is there was there ancient civilizations on Mars? No, 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 no. And then – Rogan was interviewing Musk. I was just going to say, the conversation we Bingo. missed with Rogan, where they talked about everything yeah. I talk about, except they moved it safely seconds. five light years away. Yeah, let Andrew finish his sentence. No, Richard did it. They are pushing it oh, out yeah. in the neighborhood. They're afraid of what's in our yep. backyard and what's on the floor. Yep. Okay, guys, we are literally at the end of the show. I thank you all for your contributions. I love the fact that everybody sees what's there. The next question, of course, is who is going to bell the cat, which means who is going to approach Loeb, and obviously that's going to be me. So until tomorrow night when we run this all again, I want to thank all my guests tonight, too numerous to mention. They're on the website, detailed biographies, but tonight their reaction at looking at the inexplicable and seeing what is there is a memory I'm going to take forward into a very uncertain future. So until tomorrow night, we're going to hear all this again, but get some more people to listen because they need to hear it first and fresh. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.